Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. Must the spice flow? Uh, the spice must flow. Ah. Uh, so you watched the, the feature film Dune. Yes. Uh, directed by David Lynch, right? Yes. That was yeah. one we were supposed to watch, right? I fucking hope so. No, actually, I have not seen that version. I, uh, well, you've seen parts of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, I assume you have some thoughts. Well, we watched the, we watched the, the, the new Dune, Dune Part 1. Mm-hmm. ambitiously titled when at that point they were not clear whether or not they'd be making a sequel. Yeah. Although um, Denny Villeneuve definitely uh, definitely made this movie as though it was getting a sequel. In fact, I would even venture to say he didn't make it expecting uh, to get a sequel. He made it expecting to get a chance to finish this movie. Yeah, <laughs> because I think you're right. I, I, I don't think I'm alone in saying uh, this doesn't feel like a whole movie. It's very much a part one. It feels almost like an extended trailer <laughs> for a movie we haven't seen yet. Uh, um, it, but anyway, it definitely but, is weird in that way. Um, yes. Um, but you also you are also in the midst of reading the novel for the first time, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, I am about to the point. I, I thought I was going to get there. I was. Had a couple too many beers last night and passed out, so I didn't read any further. Um, <laughs> so, but I'm, they're about to get picked up, uh, Jessica and Paul. Also, spoilers for a 60-year-old seven-year right. piece of work, right? And, and a film that uh, is is has been in theaters for, for two weeks and that you pressed play on a podcast knowing that we were going to talk about. <laughs> um, that Jessica and Paul uh, are just about to be picked up by the Fremen and... I guess have his duel. I don't know if it actually happens in the book, but that's where the movie leaves off. So, so I'm almost yeah. through the section that the movie covers. Inch, which is kind of serendipitous. That like, mm. yeah, you're pretty much. It is, yeah, pretty much there. Um, so where do we begin? Well, I have to. I'm just gonna put cards on the table, and you know, listeners, listeners, longtime listeners of the podcast will know that like I really like Denny Villeneuve. Like I loved Arrival, and I. Love Blade Runner 2049. I haven't watched his other movies, actually. But so I was very excited for this. But I also am a little biased because I, I just really like his style and approach. Same here. So cards on the table with that. Um, I went and saw it in IMAX, ah. uh, which could also partially bias me because that's an, always an experience. Um, you also saw it in theaters, though, right? Correct. I saw it in theaters um, on the on the largest screen that was available to me. <laughs> uh, Not I quite also, IMAX. I feel that, you know, people who watched it at home. Well, I know many people who watched it at home and loved it. I'm like, I feel like you missed out on something by not seeing it on a big screen. But that's just me being an asshole, I guess. But because uh, it was I mean, I mean, I'll just the the biggest here, like this movie's beautiful, like <laughs> goddamn yes. gorgeous. And not just the, you know, the epic scenery. It's just like there's so much attention to detail and everything. I was watching a YouTube video of our boy Denny, like breaking down the gom jabbar scene mm -hmm. and just like him is like 15 minutes of him just being like and i i wanted the chair to look just like this because it invokes this and then i did this with her hand because i was just like dude is a craftsman for sure <laughs> uh that's a phrase you can use for this so that is uh i like that that's cool yeah i i certainly would agree i think that the aesthetics 
and the mood all around are almost perfect. Um, I mean, the the way he captures, um, you know, a, a, a world of technology that is so far advanced and removed from our own and like the scale of the of like the ships and the way that he makes the technology like almost silent. It's so like foreboding, you know? Yeah. I mean, his use of sound in conjunction with the visuals is always I mean, I, I love that in Blade Runner 2049. I just felt like there was such I felt different leaving the movie theater and I felt not quite as the same here, but similar. And, and that there's not really a score like there kind of is, but there it's mostly just like ambient yes. stuff happening. And I kind of dig that. And like you said, the way the ship's move and feel and and like i said this partially is just because like the sound in, in the big imax theater is so big but like you know when the they called what are they the the dragonfly looking the, ships the thopters thopters like when those were flying on the screen i could like feel it rumbling in yeah. my chest and like that i was that's why i'm like i think people who didn't see it, it's like you know if, if you haven't seen it in theaters i would recommend it highly because it's, it's i awesome. can completely agree this is one of those where the the big screen and the, you know, the thousand watt sound system really, really help. Um, and just like the booming voice of the Baron, even like the weird black metal screech that is the voice or not screech. It's like, I don't even know what it is. It's a weird combo of stuff. Something I expect to hear on like an Anal Nathrak album probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like it kind of spooks you a little bit when you're is that when it's that loud and it kind of, you know, I think it has the desired effect that they were going for in that setting. So, yes. yeah. So I, and I love the way that, you know, he really obviously is a nerd for some of the details in the one thing that always that I keep thinking about and sticking out is when the Harkonnens are launching their attack on the Atreides, you know, ships in um, Arakeen. Is that the name of the yes, city? Yes, the city. Yes. Um. And like you see the bombs that hit the shields and then the shields kind of like boy and they kind of like drill through them. It's just like little th- little sci fi nerd details like that where I'm just like that is cool looking and I know what's happening kind of. And it's awesome and I love it. <laughs> yes. And and I think that, you know, he does a great job of, um, uh, you know, the um, you get a sense for how the technology works without him. There's so little like exposition mm-hmm. in the movie with things like, um, uh, you know, the technology. And it's like, yeah, you just see it and you get it. You understand like how the bombs work. And but then you also start to understand like why it is that we're 8000 years in the future, but people are fighting with swords, you know, yeah. and it's like, oh, because guns don't work against the shields that everyone has. Yeah, the only you know, so guns don't work. Um, although I think the movie could have done a better job of maybe laying out how like when lasers hit c- shields, it causes like a nuclear explosion. So that's why they're not using lasers that much. Yeah, I I agree with that. I um, think that there could have been a, a little bit more like, and he's good at you know he does the good genre fiction thing of like embedding the the exposition and description of things visually or through offhanded stuff. I mean, there is a little bit of like the. The, the, the laziest thing is just like when Paul's doing his homework and you're just uh, like they're explaining everything. I'm just like, that's like that's fine. It's fine. It's what most things do. But like it feels like he could have done that in a different way. But I'm not going to nitpick that piece. But yeah, I do think that like so I think that maybe, you know, go still doing that exposition because it, it, it makes perfect diegetic sense within the movie to have like 
to have someone sit Paul down and explain to him Arrakis. Right. Because he's a young noble moving to a foreign planet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I feel like it might have been better to have that exposition delivered by a character because that would give you a little bit more chance to, to establish some of the secondary characters and Paul's relationship with them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You would get a little bit more of that dynamic. Um, if it was me, I would have done, I mean, and and I think as a scene in the book, it would have been, uh, Awa, the the Atreides Mentat, who is really the only character who gets a pretty short shafted in this because in the book, at least so far, He's like majorly important for yeah. me, at least. And I feel like he, I mean, he's in it, but he doesn't really do much. And you don't, I don't even know if they name him by by name um, in the movie. So I think I think he does. But, you know, you don't even really know. They don't really talk about I said, I don't need more exposition, but I feel like they do a good enough job of being like the spice is important. We need it. It's expensive. Fine. People don't need more. But like, what is a mentat? And like, what are they? You know, I don't know how to squiggle it in there because I don't want to get too exposition heavy. But I think there was a couple things that I was like, I'm reading the book, so I get it. But and I did have a friend with me who knows nothing about Dune. He was mm-hmm. like, what is it like Tremors? There's sandworms or something like literally that's <laughs> his level of knowledge. And he was like, I liked it. I understood it mostly. So, you know, yeah, I guess I for the lay person it's fine. But I mean, I, I the, the one little scene where Thufir does like his Mentat thing and they, they he just like his eyes just roll back into his head and he like calculates something. Mm-hmm. It's like. I thought that was a great little bit of like, oh, okay, I get it, you know, and and I would think that like, oh, if I was somebody sitting in the audience who, you know, I, w- I would assume like, oh, maybe he's some kind of like cyborg or something. Yeah. With a computer in his head. Yeah. And I think they could have made the connection that like Spice is helping to right. do that. But it's but but the truth is, it's like, eh, it's not totally necessary. It's a nice little detail. But yeah. yeah. Um, do I need to know why in the fiction of the world they're not using computers? Maybe not. Which is cool. Yeah. Um, I like- just for me, it helps the jump of like, OK, so they don't use computers noticing that. And then it's like, OK, so they're talking about they need the spice to navigate with their guild, you know, the spacing guild navigators. It's like, OK, so like the Mentats are a nice like they're like almost a navigate. Like they're like kind of on that same spectrum of like using yeah. spice to becoming a human computer. And you're like, oh, OK, so they're like a more souped up version of this. Got it. Um, but that, that's just like a little nitpicky. But. Yeah, but I mean, I, I and there are a little a couple little things that, uh, OK, it's just annoying completely while while we're here, while we're in annoying <laughs> nitpicking uh, town. I have to get this out. Um, I don't know what went on, if it was reshoots or something, but Jason Momoa gains 30 pounds off screen and it is completely unexplained. <laughs> <laughs> I Jason Momoa in this in this film has three distinct looks. One is uh, kind of your standard issue Jason Momoa that we see when he's first introduced. Beard is scraggly. Hair is long uh, and he's jacked and, and, and scraggly beard makes sense because, you know, he was off doing stuff and he's just come back. Right. Okay, fine. He hasn't been shaven. He's been off doing Duncan Idaho stuff. I don't know. Fine. Great. And then we see him later on. Um, you know, now he's like, we're doing palace stuff. So he's trimmed the beard down to like a goatee. Um, his hair is tied back. It's neat. But he's still, okay, still chasing Momoa. And then later on, no beard and a whole new chin. And <laughs> the movie does not address it. And again, Jason Momoa 
can be as heavy and as soft as he wants to be. I am not body shaming Jason Momoa, but when you have a character gain 30 pounds off screen and also change his facial hair, you need to explain that. What happened? <laughs> I can't say I noticed that, but it was bothering me the okay. whole time. Um, yeah, that that I mean, if that is truly the case, then, yeah, I uh, that would be weird. And I, I have a feeling it was it was reshoots reshoots. Yeah, but um, that would make sense. Um, it was it was distracting. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's that's my like my main nitpick. Uh, another thing that would be a main nitpick. Um, I think the the movie basically gets around it. Um, but you know they they go through the scene where they establish okay you're gonna stab somebody the blade has to be moving slow. Uh, and in that scene they kind of show you how slow how slow is slow right mm-hmm. to make the shield turn red and let something through. But then later on in the movie, it just doesn't seem like, you know, it's just the action scenes and it's just like blue, 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 red, blue, 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 red, blue, blue, blue. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I had the same feeling because that's when I started to get confused. I'm like, wait, do I not know how the shields work? Because I thought I knew how the shields work. And I'm feeling because it's, it's not real different than um I'm sure it must have been inspired by in the Forever War when they get those domes at the end of the book that they drop mm-hmm. where they can't like certain matter, you know, matter can't move faster than anything basically to wear the special suits to survive and they fight with bows and arrows and shit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very similar idea, which I thought was interesting, but um, yeah, I was like, wait, do I not? Cause it just seems like they're just beating each other with swords. And I feel like the idea is that you have to go so slow that it's almost like you can't like swing a sword and try and hit somebody. It has to be like more of like a precision. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that I would have liked to have seen a little bit more development in like, you know, like actually developing like a, a, a in-universe fighting style that made more sense. Instead, a lot of the fights just looked like you're just kind of standard Marvel style, like, you know, Kung Fu and, you know, a lot of like, I'm going to jump on your shoulders and wrap around your neck with my legs, kind of take down mm-hmm. stuff. And it was it all looked fine, but it didn't have that same sense of like, oh, they're at this is, you know, uh, this is this fighting style that's developed over a thousand years because of this technology. And then later on, when um, another while we're talking about fight scenes, another thing that I felt like was uh, disappointingly underdone was in the in the in the duel. um you know, you see Paul defeat the Fremen like really easily. Um, and and then, you know, you see Lady Jessica do some stuff, too. And the Fremens are like, oh, you're using the weirding way. And it's like, yes, in the books, that's de- that's defined as like this kind of like Benny Gesserit fighting style that, you know, uses some cool like body movements and trickery. And, you know, it's like there's almost like supernatural fighting style they developed. Um and but in the movie, it just looks like the same just movie kung fu that everybody's doing. Right. You don't get a sense that like Paul is doing anything special. He's just better at fighting than this other guy. Yeah, um, I would agree with that for sure. And I would have liked I would have liked them to develop that a little bit more, you know, where you see, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be hard to do, you know, um, you know, in the same way that like, I think they did a great job with the voice. Right. And like. Mm-hmm illustrating how it works and also like one or two scenes they put you in the they put you the audience in the sh- in the in the shoes of someone whose the voice is being used on you know 
Mm-hmm. Um, they do a really good job with that. But like there are some other things that I was like, I kind of would have liked them to like show me what is their concept of like the weirding way fighting. You know, it's not really explained in the books in any detail. It's just like, you know, it's you know, they they're just like, you know, you're you can't all of a sudden you can't see them and they're behind you. And, you know, you know, yeah. in the same way they use the voice. It's like weird mind tricks. But um, yeah. So but these are all nitpicks. I, yeah. I will. I, I will. I will confess. Um, OK, those are my I, I'm done. I'm done picking nits. Picking nits. All right. We'll close the nitpick box. Um, oh, I actually have one last nitpick. Great. <laughs> I was reading uh, something that was just talking about like, oh, it's kind of weird that like the woman who plays Lady Jessica, whose name I'm blanking on, um, is like only like about 10 years older than Timothy Chalamet, you know, and Timothy Chalamet is like 25 playing a how would Paul supposed to be like 19, 18, uh, something like that? I, I, I would go. I feel like 16 or 17. But yeah. And um, and then they're like and then the article was like, also, was anybody else getting like sexual tension between Paul and his mom? And I was kind of just like, yeah, now yeah. that you say it, I was like uh-huh. that scene when they're changing in the desert. I was like, what is this scene yes. trying to communicate to that, me? <laughs> it was very yes. strange. There was, that me, was a weird one. Yes. I, I think they were trying to go for just like it's weird that these royals are out here like stripping down and in this kind of society that's like kind of old school and proper in a lot of ways. Not necessarily prudish, but just like they're noble people and they're, you know, they're fancy folk. So that they're out here like kind of slumming it and trying to get by. But like it did not feel that way. And in the book, it's a very their relationship is very different. Mm-hmm. Not like different at a macro level, but just like the way they interact and treat each other and the way they both act individually as characters is actually I'm finding quite different and a little jarring. I don't think it like changes much in the broad scope of the story, but it is different. But that I was like, yeah, I did get some weird sexual attention. What's with that? Yeah. And I also feel like there was a little bit in the David Lynch version. OK, um, a little bit like weird, like what? Um, and yeah, I, 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 I and I will say that I think the Jessica Paul relationship in the books is very unusual. Um but I think you understand it a bit more in the books. Like on one hand, Jessica is, you know, kind of intentionally maintaining this distance from Paul because um, one, there is there is certain like uh, like royal protocol involved. And, you know, she's the Duke's concubine, not his mm-hmm. wife. And like there's a little bit of that. Plus, their relationship is complicated because she's been a Jesuit and he was supposed to be a different uh, he was supposed to be a girl. And, you know, he his existence, he is her son, but he's also part of like her job. Yeah. So so she has a lot of mixed emotions about him and he has a lot of mixed emotions about her, not only just being a teenager, but also knowing to some degree that. You know, her relationship with his father, her relationship with the Bene Gesserit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it is a strange relationship. While at the same time, she wants to be a like she wants to be his mother, but there's all of these constraints around it. And also and and the you know, the movie doesn't touch on this a lot yet, but like he might also be like the chosen one. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's natural for them to have a strange relationship, but I think that this movie doesn't quite develop it enough for you to understand like how they feel about each other. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think the the biggest thing, the struggle with adapting Dune, at least from my perspective so far is that 
so much of the plot happens in people's thoughts. Precisely. Right? Yes. And it's actually, it's not a style I particularly care for in the book where like you don't get set perspectives and in each chapter, whatever area, you know, like if we were having a conversation it'd be like, Andrew would say blah, blah, blah. And then in his head, he's thinking this and blah, blah. Next paragraph be like, but Greg thinks blah, blah, blah. It's yeah. like, I don't really love that. Like omniscient kind of, it just feels weird. Um, and just like disjointed and also a little confusing at points. But so you miss out a lot of that. Like, I mean, and they cut things that would have been even worse. Like there's a whole subplot in the first part of the book where like they think like Thufir and like thinks Jessica is the traitor among them, you know, for the traitor for the Harkonnens up to the point even when he's like captured and stuff. It's like I knew it was that Bene Gesserit, which like, you know, and but but like and, you know, Duke Leto, he he's like he knows it's not her, but he has to act like it's her. To like, it's like always very kind of yeah. confusing subplots, which I can see why someone wouldn't like be like, what's going on? Um, but my biggest thing that I feel like is different from just like having just read it, like literally going home and reading that night, like some things I just watch is like Paul is a lot more likable in the movie <laughs> and like he he is not as mean to his mom. Yeah, because like he is in the parts I'm in right now, he is like being very, very like mean to her and like basically hates her because right. he's starting to feel like he's going going crazy because they're showing a lot more of what him being near the spice and everything is doing for his like future vision kind of stuff multiple timeline vision whatever he has it's unclear to me yet exactly what that is but um uh, well let me tell you it's not going to get a lot clearer yeah yeah <laughs> so uh, manage you know, and, your expectations on how <laughs> premonition works in dune right and for her they also kind of made her a little bit more like emotional and caring in the movie which is i don't love that that's like my biggest more like not nitpick more like a, a choice that i don't love because i mean you, you see her dedication and her discipline to the benny Gesserit and everything but you know she's so distraught all the time around him and that's not how she is in the books because she might feel it internally but she's not really showing it because she can't so that's that for me that's a i i for me one of the parts i i i, I dislike the most um is the, the the portrayal of Lady Jessica in the movie, mm-hmm. because I feel like in the books and in other adaptations, she's a pretty strong character. Now, she's also being torn in a lot of different directions um, by by the events of the of the story. Right. She, you know, there's, there's all of this stuff going on and she's very conflicted. And um, but I just feel like in the film she spends most of her time like just seemingly like a cowering wreck. Yeah. Um, and whereas, you know, she's typically, like, you know, a little bit more, even when she is nervous, she is more composed. She's a Bene Gesserit. Like she, she right. should be in, in control in this way, but um, her, her emotions on screen were just so big. Um, yeah. And I think it's because he was trying to demonstrate, because we don't get, I think the conflict or the, you know, the problem they're trying to solve for is like he's trying to show that she cares about Paul and Leto like, you know, a lot. But since we since and Dune, that's done via her internal monologues, you get her true love for them. But you can't do that in this. So the way to show it is by making her more emotional, which but then kind of detracts from the character. So I I think I knew why he did it, but I, I agree with you. I don't think it was like the right call. Yeah, I think it was it was just a little too um, she was just a little too, I mean, weak um, yeah. when, you know, she really should be, um, uh, you know, that she's 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 a sex witch. 
And also one of the more powerful sex witches. And they don't, you know, she should just be like, she should. I can understand the idea of like making her seem more conflicted, more confused, um, because a big part of the 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 backstory of Dune is that she lets her love for the Duke overpower her mission as a Bene Gesserit. Right. Because Leto wanted a son, but the Bene Gesserit wanted it, wanted Paul to be a daughter so that the daughter could be wed to one of the Harkonnens and then their kid would be the Kwisatz Haderach. Like that's that was the ingoing plan. But Jessica, because, you know, she loved the Duke so much, bailed on that. And that's very uncommon for a Bene Gesserit. So this this moment is like a huge lapse, right? Not, oh, she's just a nervous, flighty woman all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think we're definitely in agreement there about that being kind of the biggest weak point or, you know, uh, misadaptation from the book. Yeah. Um, um, Which is sad because her performance in doing that is really good, I yes. think. But it's like it's not it's not who you're supposed to be. <laughs> right. I wouldn't I wouldn't say like, oh, it's a bad. I I, I absolutely believe it was a um, um, a directing choice, not a performance choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't I, you know. But yeah. So is there anything else that you felt really strongly about like negative wise or when you first left the theater, we we were talking briefly after you said you had a lot of like mixed feelings or is it mostly just around the Jessica stuff? Well, no, 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 no. I I, I don't know. Um, I think maybe what um, my initial mixedness of it and I feel better now, although I would still feel like I, I can't have a final thought on it until I've watched it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the kind of lack of narrative thrust, uh, bothered me. Um, and I understand that, well, we're only getting half of the story here, right? Mm-hmm. I understand that, you know, we're, we're basically getting up halfway through the empire strikes back and we have to walk away. Right. Right. Um, I understand that, but I also feel like there might have been a way to tell this chunk of the story in such a way that it had more of an arc and was, and the main character's motivations were a little clearer because at this point, everything is just happening to Paul. Yeah. Right. and and happening to Jessica. Everything is happening to these characters. And that's kind of dull to watch. Yeah. Um that's the one thing my I had another friend who saw it and he knows nothing about Dune and he was like, It was beautiful, but I feel like it was just like movie just felt like a series of things that happened. Yeah. I didn't really get like the it's not that I didn't understand what was going on, I did, it just didn't really feel like it had like a through line. Right. And it's 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 also hard to care about, you know, um, it's hard to care about the the Atreides on Arrakis um, and like their prospects on Arrakis. It's hard to care because it's like they're fucking space billionaires. They already have a whole planet like and they don't and, and they talk about Arrakis just as a like as a business opportunity. Right. Yeah. So then it's like, oh, we're going to lose Arrakis. It's like, all right. Go go fucking back to your other cool planet. Go back to space Scotland where you came from. <laughs> like, it, it's just kind of so I don't feel anything when the Harkonnens 
try to retake Arrakis. And also, the movie doesn't give me enough of a sense of time to it feels like it's the next day. Yeah, definitely. That was something I noticed. I'm like, how long though? How long did it take to get here? How long have people been running around doing this stuff? Yeah. Uh I do feel like I agree with you. I, I and that's you know, it'll be interesting to see how it feels to do like a back-to-back watch when the time comes where you have the full thing. I don't love like, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about just like releasing a movie like that that just doesn't feel done. Like I said, there really isn't an arc. Although I, re- I read some earlier reviews where like the movie just kind of ends. And I'm like, I didn't quite feel that way. Like it ends on this kind of like hopeful note that, you know, you're moving into a new transition of the story, but it's still it feels very anticlimactic for sure. I think that I don't know what I and I don't know what I would do differently to like fix it because it's a very faithful adaptation. But I feel like between trying to give it some sort of narrative thrust and arc. But the other thing I would try and do is just like they put all the pieces of like why everything matters and everyone's motivations. But it's kind of hard to put together. Like even in the book, it's that way. It's just like, so wait, the, the Harkonnens were in charge, but they left. And then but like the emperor is making them leave. But also the emperor wants to kill the trade. Why do it yes. like, and it's like there's a lot of just like why, why, why? And also, why do I care? I mean, the movie does a really good job of I think. The, my favorite portrayal is is Duke Leto. Like, yeah, I mean, great casting, and they do a really good job of being like, here's this guy who's like, for his station, is a good guy? Question mark. Like, he is a good guy. He's a noble guy. He cares about people, but also a space billionaire who's like trying to, you know, just become rich. Or, you know, he seems to want to do that with his minimal like life lost and his much you know working with people as he can but it's still like to make profit scope at the end of the day which like isn't a great like character but you know they you know the scene with the thopter the um the harvester and everything like they really you know that's a that was a really well done scene in the book and in the movie i thought adapted it really well to be like oh i this i like this guy he's a good guy right um, um yeah you know, I agree. And the harkonnens I think- are kind of like it's kind of like, what's their motivation? They just bat, capital B bad guys. Yeah. Like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. They're just, they're just cartoonishly evil. And that's true of the book too. And yeah. that's why I say like, in some cases, I almost feel like the adaptation is too faithful. Right. Um, because there are certain things that I, I feel like, you know, have always been an issue with Dune um, that could have been resolved but weren't like, for example, um, you know, at least at this point in the story, Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho are the same fucking guy. And, you know, it's for the movie to spend all this time introducing two different space karate teachers for Paul and then to just have one get killed and the other to just disappear from the screen for the whole movie kind of feels like we could have used that time elsewhere developing something else right yeah for sure um so that's 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 a that's a big piece of it for me um uh that or 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 i wouldn't say that's a big piece but that's an example and i understand that yes you know we will see more of gurney later and he will be a you know more important character but um and again spoilers for something from 60 years ago but like duncan idaho is going to come back too um so I feel like that would have been an opportunity to like compress those two characters, save us mm-hmm. some time. Cause it seems like he did that. There, there's should be two Harkonnen, uh, henchmen. There's Raban, who's played by Dave Batista, but in the book, there's also, um, Fade, 
who in the David Lynch movie was played by Sting. Um, like, oh, I don't think I've met him in the book yet. Okay, maybe he doesn't show up yet. Maybe he does yeah. show up later. But because um, in the, in the, there's the two, the three Harkonnens that I'm like aware. Of, well, one's not Harkonnen. The guy, bad guy, is he was played by the guy who played Polka Dot Man. The, yeah, their uh, mentat. Peter Peter DeVries, I think. Yeah. Yep. So, but yeah, it's, it's it that is yeah that would be it. I think yeah he hasn't shown up in the book yet, at least for me, or they might have mentioned him, but. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I wasn't sure, but, but I think like there, this seems like this would have been a chance. This, this would have been a chance to like save us some screen time, spend a little bit more time on one thing than another. Um, I also feel like we spent a lot of time with Liet Kynes mm-hmm. in a way that maybe was unnecessary because I feel like she was basically just repeating exposition we'd already had. Yeah, it feels like. It's hard because, you know, the setting is so it's Dune, right? It's, you know, it's the water. Yeah. And, and pr- but I feel like we spent a lot of time hammering that home. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I get it. Like you probably, yeah, you probably could have cut a couple of scenes for abuse elsewhere that were kind of that that the purpose of is to be like, remember, they're on a desert planet and water is sacred. It's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like, right. Or, so. or you you could have spent more time. And in the books, it's just Liet Kynes explaining this to the characters, which makes which is fine in a book. But it's weird that, like, you have this character who's like, are they a Fremen or not? We're going right. to be mysterious about that for reasons that are never going to matter um, <laughs> to explain how the Fremen work when in the so that when we finally meet the Fremen, we already know how they work. And I feel like it might have been it might have made for a better a better arc in this movie if we didn't get that data dump about the Fremen so that at the end, when we meet them, they are very mysterious. Yeah, that's the thought. And then we can learn more about them in movie two, right? Yeah. Um, and we can do more showing than telling mm-hmm. um, because that's kind of what movie two is going to be. It's going to be Paul learning how to be a Fremen. But we already learned all about, you know what I mean? Yeah. It just seems... It, it, that that would have been an opportunity to say like, hey, we're going to deviate from the books a little bit here because we think it's better to keep the Fremen more mysterious and dangerous. Uh, for yeah, I think that's fair, especially if they could have instead worked in some of the stuff that I'm getting more from the book of just like the how great of warriors they are, like how fearsome they are, how yes. like how they think there's way more of them than they initially thought. Like the Harkins like, Oh, there's only like five or 10,000. I was like, actually it's probably like over a million. And it's like that. And I think that's more important for the macro story of like, why are the Fremen important? And like, and then what ends up happening down the road from what I remember from very long time ago, when you explained (laughs) to me and just bits and pieces I've read without trying to get too much, just like reading everything. I am reading the book. I'm going to keep going as much as I can. Um, But I know that like, it's a thing of like the Fremen being, loyal to Paul and why and, and that kind of stuff like a little bit more there a little bit less about just like here's how a still suit works it's like right. I kind of get it um so yeah agree with you there I think that it makes kind of the same Doom kind of makes the same mistake that the early the first expanse book slash season kind of makes where they're trying to introduce shades of gray earlier than is like helpful yeah like I, I totally get wanting to have you know not have more than just a good guy binary story and having different factions and thing. But like, but if you like introduce all of those shades of gray, as you're also introducing like the factions and the setup and the 
setting, it can get a little confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're like, I don't know who is like, whatever his motivations are. And like, hey, what you're saying, you know, in this pants is like, well, you've got like, you know, the OPA and like, there's, there's good guys in the OPA and bad guys in the OPA. Okay. Like you kind of have to maybe work into that more like in Game of Thrones where it's like, okay, Lannister's bad. Stark's good. Got it. And it's like, well, maybe it's not quite that simple as you move right. on and you, but, you build on that. But initially it's like, OK, I kind of know where my, my grounding is and you can yes. go from there. Whereas so, in Dune, it's like, OK, Atreides good unconditionally. Uh, Harkonnen bad unconditionally. Yeah. Fremen good. You know, it's it's question mark. Yeah. And like but also like I think I think it's actually very much the just the presence of like the emperor and the imperial pieces are i think what really muddled the there's uh, yes. the two pieces it's them and the benny jesuits like you don't really know what their motivations are like or you kind of know like on paper what they are but you don't know if you're supposed to want that or not it's like okay the benny jesuits are trying to bring about this whatever god it's fucking called mm-hmm. um but it's like okay is that good or bad and it's like okay when the benny jesuits do this and they kind of influence these houses and they try and influence, okay it's like, like but is that good or bad? like Okay, the emperor is disguising the troops to look like Harkonnens, but they're these uh, elite forces because he's pulling the strings. It's like, okay, so does that mean the emperor is just evil as well? And it's like, well, right. Fremen are these guys that are kind of the we're kind of trying to play, they're like the oppressed group, and they're being hunted, and you know, we're kind of their land is being invaded, taking their resources, and it's like, but Kynes is like kind of representative Fremen, but also an imperial person. Like, I just like it gets a little muddled in that area because yeah, it's like trades are good, Harkonnens bad pretty obvious but yeah so that, i think it's just that middle stuff that kind of makes it be like and that's a lot of the mechanisms of the plot to to be fair is kind of all in that stuff so interesting yeah it's it's just um yeah like i say it's just it's very the the, the plot is very complex and like i don't even fully um i don't even fully understand the the machinations even now after reading the book several times and watching all the different movies about it um like why uh why the emperor takes it away from the harkonnens but then gives it right back yeah and like they they say it in the movie but you don't it's hard to connect it all because like i was i was having that i was in the shower the next day and i was like why in the world is this plot so like convoluted and like like you said why does he take away the planet have these trades come go through all that rigmarole just to kill them all why does he just kill them all in the first place but it's like they say in the movie at one point that like, oh, there's no satellites on, on Arrakis. So when this happens, no one, none of the other great houses and the Landstrad or whatever it's called, like that's a whole nother faction. He's like, what is that? I don't know what that is. I don't have any inkling of who that is or what they're doing. And like, because they could potentially then be like, oh, the emperor's moving against the great houses. That's not OK. We're going to rebel against him. That's like sort of like the explanation, but it's not really felt in the plot for lack right. of a better term right so it comes across very like why is this happening that they lured you here to kill you but why <laughs> yeah um, um and it's because yeah. duke Leto was getting so too powerful and too popular and they're worried you know whatever so that's trying to t- cut them off at the heels but then but it's it's each one is fine on its own right because you're like okay that makes sense but then you start layering them and it's kind of like okay and then how does that layer on top of the Bene Gesserit motivations? And how does that layer upon just the individual house motivations and the Fremen motivations? And then some of these characters that are kind of in between motivations. And yeah, it's, it's just a little bit, a little bit convoluted. Like, I think the movie does a fine job of kind of like cutting through some of that and being just like making you actually identify with Paul and Lady Jessica and being like, well, clearly those guys are bad. And clearly these guys are not that bad. So right. I'm with them. 
but yeah it, it but it was just it it's it's weird because this movie is long but also very little happens but when things do happen you don't know why they're happening yeah um you just know that your heroes are kind of, are in danger mm-hmm. um so like I say, I don't know exactly how to fix it, but I feel like I've got some some starting ideas, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I've got some basic some basic theories. And I, I just think that, um, you know, I think that maybe even, you know, it, it all seems like it happens very fast. Right. Like but imply a little bit more time between when they get to Iraq, you know, when they're given Arrakis and when the shit hits the fan. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like establish that more time has passed. Let me, uh, you know, let me feel like we, you know, oh, this is a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, you know, all that being said, that deep dissection, which I think is, I still stand by, like, I still really like the movie. Like I, yes. I like really enjoyed it. I was in it the whole time. I felt leaving. I felt the movie theater feeling like really excited. I just think, you know, said the the craftsmanship the care i appreciate the idea of just trying to adapt something like i i think that we since you know we talked about a lot just like we talk so much about adaptations on here something i think about a lot of just like the craft of adaptation is so fascinating you know there is a school of thought where like just like straight adapting it is interesting and, and compelling in one way right and there's you know really truly adapting it and changing it in a way that fits the medium better you know i like them both ways to be honest and uh. Yeah, you know, and th- it, it's it's fine. I think it depends, you know, how how uh, pr- I'll say precisely you adapt it. Right. Because an accurate adaptation, you know, versus a precise like a precise adaptation. I would I would say that in many ways, like Zack Snyder's Watchmen was a precise adaptation. Right. Mm-hmm. Or maybe 300 is a better example, because I think he understood 300 in a way he didn't understand uh Watchmen, but like it's like yeah you you got everything up on the screen you did it it's very accurate like you can't point to a lot of things and say that was different in the books Mm -hmm. but you could still do it that way but it's not accurate in the way that like it captures the tone or the themes um and i think dune is a very difficult thing to adapt accurately because like you say like so much of the the uh, of the plot happens it's it's internal it's people trying to suss out other people's motives other people's allegiances um all of these complex logic chains that are in the book of like you say like leto leto knows jessica isn't the spy but has to pretend that she is the spy because he needs to he needs someone else to think that he thinks it and that's very difficult to adapt to a film um so it's it's that's very tricky um and i don't know that he captured all of that like the sense of intrigue the sense of um tension that is all over the like palace chapters of dune because you know frank herbert you know he writes you know he he establishes this you know incredibly internecine future world where everyone's attention is so keenly focused on like the slightest movement of other people's eyebrows you know um where they're all, you know, trying to read each other's minds by like seeing if the the hair on someone's ears pricks up, you know, um, 
and that works great in a book um, and you sense that it is alien and removed from our own world. But that creates all of this tension because, you know, they're all trying to, you know, read each other and not be read themselves. And um, that's great. It's hard to do in a movie, um, yeah. understandably. But I also feel like this movie didn't really capture that feeling of everything hangs on a knife's edge. All of these royal conversations are so fraught and there is intrigue around every corner and, you know, those sorts of things. It didn't quite capture that. And I feel like that's an important element to all of it. But maybe it isn't. Maybe when you zoom out and you say, look, when I'm thinking about Dune and I'm thinking about the themes, it's more about things like destiny and manipulation and those sorts of ideas. And maybe that's true. But I also feel like this movie didn't really touch on any of those themes, you know? Yeah, so far the movie did not really lay out or capitalize on a lot of themes, I'd say, which yeah. is probably a flaw. There aren't really any themes. It, yeah. it doesn't really have. And, and th that's a big part of what I walked away from. It just felt very shallow mm. in a certain way. Um, yeah. And that, that leads to, I think, the like you said, the sort of idea of it being almost too, too precise or accurate. Right. Like because. If you ask me right now where I am in the book, what's the theme of Dune? I'd be like, I don't fucking know. Like, right. <laughs> Cause I'm halfway through the book and it's, I feel like the, and, and it's such a, there's so much buildup in the first half that it's almost not even like, it's more like I'm in the first quarter of the book is what it feels like. Cause that's how books kind of feel, right? Yeah. You know, that, there's that meaty chunk in the middle and, and then the climax, which has, which is a, a majority of like the story story. I do feel like, at least for me so far, like the, the hyper focused edge, all that kind of thing. I do feel like that's a it's more of like a a a plot thing, less of like a like so far nothing has really happened because of that. Yeah. So it's hard to say it's like crucial, even though it seems crucial to like the it's I guess it's more like a world building thing. Yeah. But it seems less about like it hasn't really driven anything in the plot to like matter. And maybe you don't need it. Maybe, you you know, that that that, that may be 100 percent true that you just don't need it. It's more. uh it, it's um, but, uh, you know, I think about like it seems like there's such fertile ground here for um, to explore the theme of destiny, whether it's a cosmic destiny or just like what is expected of you as a noble, you know, what your parents expect of you. Right. There's so much you could do with that within the framework of Dune. You've got a you've got Paul, who is a teenager who's oh, just naturally super easy to empathize with. He's chafing at what his parents expect of him, right? On one hand, there's his dad, who is by by all accounts, a great dad, but it's also grooming him to be like one of the like seven most powerful people in the galaxy, right? And all of the pressure and education that that entails. And that gives you a perfect lens to examine like how Paul feels about that. And not only like how he feels about what he's being groomed for, but also how he feels about being groomed for it. I realize groom is a difficult word right now, but um, <laughs> uh, but then also there is 
you know, what his mother expects of him and all of the pressure that is on him because of the circumstances of his birth and how that has impacted his relationship with his mother. And then there is what the, the Bene Gesserit expect of him because, right, there's all of these things about his destiny, what is expected of him and how his own free will is a part of that, that you could very easily frame much of this movie around. And I think that would do a better job of setting up the themes that are to come of like, okay, again, spoilers, but like once he gets the ability to see the future and understands that he has to basically become space Hitler, like and how he wrestles with that destiny, you've laid the groundwork for it, right? And you've you've centered the story around Paul and you've centered it around destiny and and expectations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this movie doesn't do that. It's just like, okay, we're gonna we're setting up the world, we're setting up the conflict, kind of, but also it's not like we've established that Paul super loves Arrakis or Arakeen or right, like so if the next movie is about him retaking the capital city, I'm not sure I care. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. what does it mean to him? It means nothing to him. We've, we've we've established nothing of that. Like, yeah, the Harkonnens killed his dad, that and a lot of his friends, I guess. So he's mad about that. But, you know, yeah. it, does, it doesn't carry a lot. That doesn't carry the kind of weight that this story is supposed to carry. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a problem that I'm going to pull back a sec and say, like, I think. There's a lot of science fiction that is more about the ideas than the characters or even the plot itself. I mean, the plot is informing the ideas, right? Mm -hmm. But some of it's an exercise in just like world building and what if, which people enjoy, you know, different technology, different whatever. But I've been reading a little bit about the Foundation show and mm -hmm. people's thoughts on it. And it sounds very similar where it's like people are like, I, I mean, it looks beautiful, but like that movie is not about people. It's about this idea of, you know, I mean, I haven't read the Foundation series yet, but, you know, it's more about this idea of the how it works. Right. Like how just like how the whole concept of, you know, that storyline works less so than the individual characters, especially in that case. And I feel like Dune is like, I mean, at least so far reading the book, it's like it's kind even though it's so inside people's heads, it still feels like they're more just pawns in the story as opposed to mm -hmm. like characters with their own agency. And that's similar to like, um I just forgot my third example, but hmm. you know, I just think that's a, that's a problem with science fiction. So, oh, like I say, like, you know, talking about three adapting the three body problem. I'm just like, I haven't read it, but I've talked to people who have, and I'm just like, that sounds hard to adapt. And because it's so much more about just like, well, the concepts are so neat and yeah, unique. It's, it's like, okay. It's a movie about a physics. It's, it's a, it's a movie about a book about a physics problem. Right. So it's like, that's cool and all, but is it about the characters? Like, and it's hard to make a movie about ideas is why I guess my overall point is. Well, and in, in the same way that the books are made. Yeah. But I think that you I, I think that you can get there with Dune. I mean, I think that it's it's there. I mean, I think that you can find a way to make it more character driven um, and still be able to have it be about these big ideas of, you know, destiny and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, 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 and I feel like to make it a movie, you, you have to, you mm -hmm. know, like there's, it, it works as a book when it is like, yeah, we know that the characters are props to explore the themes, but in a movie, I need more, I need more relationship with them. And I, I think that, um, 
I, I, I really think this could have got there, but I just don't think that um, I don't know if it was an issue of Denny Villeneuve not thinking it was necessary or Denny Villeneuve not or him trying and failing. But it just, you know, this it it should be about people grappling with forces that are far beyond their control or comprehension, you know? Yeah. And I feel like he's trying, like I said, making Paul. I feel a lot more identified with movie Paul than I do with book Paul. I feel like yeah, I have Paul a lot is better. a little too smart. Yeah, I feel a little bit more of like the love and familial connection between Leto, Jessica and Paul in the movie that like the book kind of tells me is there, but doesn't really show me like they're, you know, one of the few one of the few scenes that is not like a page for page adaptation um, word for word adaptation from the book is like when they're in on Space Scotland and they're at the cliffs and they're talking and he's like, you know, it says that speech about your, you'll be my son. And it's very tight. It's like, that's not in the book. Yeah. Um, and that was needed. I was like, okay, cool. Like he, you know, he really cares about his son and his son really looks up to him and they have a strong bond. So when he dies, it means something to Paul. Yes. And vengeance is not his only driving force, but it is a driving force that is easy to identify with. And there's more going on here, obviously, but where in the book, he kind of doesn't seem like, I mean, he does, they talk about his grief and stuff, but he's so caught up in being so smart and so magical, not magical. Like it kind of gets lost. Yes, he, he's yeah. Book Paul is he's he's too smart. He's too confident. He's too like uh, he's a little bit of a Mary Sue, right? Yeah. Like, he, which is it, kind of the point, right? But except the except the book, except he's never wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, it's one thing if he's overconfident because he's. You know, because he's a teenage noble, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, I get it. But the fact that he's, you know, in the books, he's just like he's already read the script, yeah. um, which, which is, is not fine a compelling... later on once he's able to see the future. But he can't see the future at this point in the story. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I, I, all that being said, I I think and I think there's room and I'm curious to see how, you know, if the second if the part two will kind of solidify some of these things and maybe there's stuff that it's not as easy to see that when as I'll taken as a whole, it might come together more. I don't know. I'm curious. Honestly, I think, I think this story works better either as a mini series or like a five episode mini series or as a, uh, a film trilogy. I just think that the story breaks down a little bit more easily. Like mm-hmm. if this was a trilogy, episode one ends with the, uh, Harkonnen attack. You know, mm-hmm. episode two ends, um, you know, with Paul, basically um, ep- episode two is exile in the desert and, you know, joining the Fremen. Episode three is retaking Arakeen. Yeah, I think that would be like that first movie would be hard to you have to really change a lot to make it compelling, I think. Even I the think second movie, too, probably. You can spend more time. And that's why I say maybe a miniseries is better because then your episodes are shorter. But right, like, right. I think but then you can spend more time with, you know, um, you can spend more time re- developing the relationship between Paul and Leto so that when Leto dies, it hits the audience as hard as it hits Paul. Right. Yeah, that's um, fair. You can spend more time uh, um, making us as the audience care about Eric Keen, care caring about the Atreides as a, as a faction, you know? Right. Um, and then, you know, and then we can have Paul take his mystical journey in 
season two and or season two episode two and become you know you know become one of the fremen have a spiritual awakening cast off some of the stuff you know from uh you know from his noble etc etc um i just feel like it it breaks down a little bit more cleanly that way whereas right now it's kind of like okay i guess he's gonna go join these guys now and i i guess i kind of knew that's where this was going (laughs) right um you know like oh that's like he's been having dreams about Chani this whole time for no reason. Um, and then we, we meet her and, and nothing really happens, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, yeah. And that, that whole thing just felt a little weird too. Like, I was like, what, where is, where is this coming from? You know? And why is this the only dream he's having is her. Right. Cause spoilers, she's not going to be the only girl who's important. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, and I, while we're at it, I, I, there's something I have to, I have to kind of pick at here with the Fremen. Um, Dune has long been criticized for doing the white savior, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a valid criticism. Um, it, it's also, it's also an artifact of when it was written, you know, it was written in the sixties and, you know, calling something Lawrence of Arabia in space was a good thing then. Um, but the white savior thing has always been a problem for Dune. But it kind of seems like these movies are super leaning in to that because the Atreides family is lily white and almost all of their, uh, shall we say, help is not. Um, and the Fremen are all decidedly non-white, right? Yeah. Like like the, the movie makes a point to show us this. And that is a weird decision i think yeah given the already fraught racial politics of dune the, the of the source material um it kind of feels like uh i mean it was is this, was this the point was he trying to tell us this like is he trying to like turn the white savior thing into something like what is happening here because it's it's disturbing to me how how uh uh, how white saviory it is still because originally it was like oh look they're definitely like diversifying the cast and look but then you realize like oh the royal family though is still like super white and the other royal family that they're feuding with is super white um and maybe he wants to draw attention to that but which is fine but then for the story to go where it's gonna go and still have those racial elements in play weird as fuck yeah, it's a very curious choice. Um, and I know, like, the rebuttal to the white savior thing is that, well, it's kind of like that idea is then rebutted in the second book and whatever. But I don't know all the details of that. I just remember re- kind of reading that and having a vague understanding of that. But uh, muddled. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I think sometimes people get a little bit caught up in, especially if you're going for, like, I'm going to be accurate quote unquote like like okay well people live on a desert planet like it would make sense that they have dark skin blah blah blah, and these people don't and and like you kind of missed it like maybe we can ignore those things for the sake of making it a little bit less gross (laughs) and a lot of genre fiction nerds struggle with that well it's i mean the story of dune it's hard to get away from the basic idea of white guy meets space indians 
becomes like teaches them how to be space Indians better and is the best space Indian um, and then uses the space Indians as his personal army to regain his like colonial empire. That's fucked up as a story, right? Yeah. And uh, and I don't know, like, I don't know how you continue to tell the story of Dune and subvert that narrative. Right. Like, it's kind of baked into the story. Right. So then it's to, the main plot of the story. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I I don't know how you get there from here. Um, now you could, you know, you could. And, and this is within the original text. You can work. You can, you know, if you if you spend a little bit more time talking about how, like, well, the Fremen have been manipulated by centuries of Bene Gesserit uh, efforts to basically have their entire religion engineered for this. Right. Uh, which would be true to the original text. Still a little bit weird, but, um, you know, you could, you know, you could, you know, you could, you could, you could kind of engineer it like, yeah, this is actually still a part of the colonial project. This is this is, you know, this is um, uh, yes, there are racial elements at play, um, but those racial elements have been consciously manipulated by, you know, by the powers behind the scenes to just make colonialism easier, which is kind of true. But I feel like if that's the angle you're going to take here, you needed to do more building in this movie of the colonial forces at play, the Bene Gesserit forces at play, the the whole Missionary of Protectivia program, which is they mention it a little bit in the in the movie to kind of be like, yeah, they've been kind of brainwashed, like not brainwashed, but like, yeah, the Bene Gesserit have been basically preparing the Fremen to look at you as a savior. Like that was it's a plan, you yeah. know. On the other hand, it, it also that also then infantilizes the native population because they were just tricked, you know, by space nuns into into this. But I mean, it's not perfect. I mean, I feel like you could maybe get there, but I don't think this movie did nearly enough to lay the groundwork for it. So yeah. I am very curious to see how the fucking racial politics of Dune Part Two go. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see like, I mean, maybe I mean, maybe I don't know, maybe Dune just like isn't that great of a story? It's got a lot of problems. <laughs> and 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 uh, I love Dune. I think that it's it's a fantastic series. It has some problems. Uh it has some problems with clearly its racial politics. It has some problems with uh with the Paul Atreides character. And I got to say once the narrative shifts away from Paul, it doesn't get a lot better. Like I, I mean, I don't know that you can tell have really convincing character driven narratives when your main characters are also future seeing God emperors. Um, but I, I just feel like all of the problems with Dune, I think are more or less solvable if you're careful. But the fact that it seems like he's leaning into the racial thing here, um, without providing any clear commentary on it or subversion of it is very strange. Very strange. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm be fascinated to see because like you know the one thing that's the the meta context is like this movie did really fucking well, which is kind of surprising to me. It is surprising to me. Um, and like you know, generally people really liked it, like audience critic wise, but also just like pure dollars wise. It, I mean, it's is it the best perform one of the best performing like pandemic movies? And I'm sure it drove HBO Max subscriptions because I know I mean, the majority of people I talked to watched it at home. But it also did great in the theater. So, like, a lot of people watch this movie. Yes. So that is interesting. 
just from like a demographic standpoint that like people, I don't know, because like Blade Runner 2049 did not do well, <laughs> which was probably a better movie. I mean, it was it was a whole movie, so it was inherently better, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I'm just curious, like what? I don't know. The, the meta context I have of this is that I find it is fun is that like it, it, it's the double edged sort of like, you know, in every interview and in every discussion with Denny Villeneuve, he, he is like, I love Dune. I read it since I was fucking 14. But then you get a very static, like, you know, like growing up for him, Paul Atreides was probably a hero character that he looked up to in a lot of ways, right? Your proverbial, you know, like proverbial, like Luke Skywalker or whatever, right? Yeah. And so it's hard to then try and maybe change the story in any way that really matters or also wrestle with some of those more, you know, problematic or difficult pieces of it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's an interesting point that because I do think that, yeah, it could be that he's like too close to the story, I guess, is how I would yeah, describe it. Right? No, that, that's a that's a good way to put it. Like he's just, yeah, it, a little unwilling to maybe fix some of the issues that it had. It just seems like he's he's trying to just um, and maybe you could say he's fallen into the trap of everyone else who's tried to adapt this, which is trying to adapt it faithfully on the surface, but not trying to like actually bring this story forward into the 21st century. Right. Right. Um, it's going to be an interesting comparison for me because, you know, the wheel of time show comes out in two weeks and while it is much more recent, it's still an older series, at least the beginning of it. He started writing the first book in like 1982 or whatever. Yeah. And it has some of the same trappings, Right. It's a very gendered world building situation. Right. Um, it kind of completely ignores race in a way that probably at the time felt like, you know, the goal of people at the time. Right. Like for people who were, oh, we're all just people, you know, which yeah the, is a understandable, but not the correct way to view the world, obviously. Um, you know, and, and thinking about these creators now who I mean, being in a world where, where mostly we have adaptations of things and they're not even and, and, and people wanting to be faithful because they are fans themselves mm -hmm. right like the showrunner for i've been watching a lot of wheel of time content from like because amazon's putting out a ton of content just like behind the scenes stuff and describing this and interviews and whatever and rafe the showrunner for wheel of time like he's like yeah i mean i i've read these books like four times through and i'm the biggest fan and it's like but he's also i think young and hip enough to like know like i can't just adapt Obviously, it's 15 books you have to cut things anyway. So like you're already going back to the drawing board on some stuff. So but reframing that and how like I said, how do you bring the story forward and change it in a way that makes it that eliminates some of the troublesome things, but maintains the themes and the feeling. And it'll be for me an interesting comparison just because it does have those same like the you know, like the the women are the magic users and you know, how do we handle that in a modern context? And there's like kind of some non-race, but also like they also have a pop a group of like desert dwelling people that the main character is kind of gets ingratiated with and becomes one. It's like there's it has a lot of similar things in it. And I'm just curious how because it seems like for the Wheel of Time, he is taking a lot of steps to like modernize it and eliminate some of those things that it seems like maybe Danny Vianney was not ready to do. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's I mean, I guess. And you know much more about Wheel of Time than I do. I, I I don't even think I finished the first book, but um, like it's it's completely race neutral, right? Like 
he very rarely describes people's skin tones, which right. can be interpreted as everybody's white. Well, sure. But it's also an issue of um, and, and I think when you're talking about um, like, I, I don't I, I don't think it's out of bounds for anybody to write a fictional world where race as a concept does not exist. Right. I don't. That's fine. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, write write one. Uh, write a fictional world where gender doesn't exist. Right. Like you can do this. Um, and I wouldn't begrudge anyone for doing it. Um, and just saying like, yeah, I, I understand that's an issue in our world, but in the world I've created that it's just, that's just not a thing. There just aren't people either. There aren't people of like different phenotypes in the same way that we have them. Or this is a world where just the concept of racialization never developed. Fine. Um, uh, and in that case, like it, that, that seems kind of the way Wheel of Time is. I don't, it's not explicit, but it just doesn't like, it just doesn't discuss it. It's not really a thing. But if you have a fantasy world where you have different races, either different races in the way that, you know, we have them in our world, or like you have like a Tolkien world where like it might even be different species, right? Like hobbits and dwarves might be different species. They might not be able to interbreed. We don't know. But they are they are different races and the the, the world they live in sees them as different races. Whether or not they're actually biologically distinct is an open question, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, are they different species or are they just, you know, different phenotypes within the world um but if if there is race like and they're treating each other differently like you kind of have to have something to say about it and then to take wheel of time and be like oh when we're adapting this we're basically just going to do race blind casting and just we're just going to cast people and have a multi-ethnic cast and we're not going to address it it doesn't matter right because in the world you know the world of wheel of time the people in the world of Wheel of Time, they don't look at what we would describe as an Asian person, what we would describe as a black person and think about them any differently than, um, you know, we would look at a person with blue eyes and a person with green eyes and think like, oh, boy, it's a blue eyed person. They're criminals. You know, it's just not a thing. It's not discussed. Who cares? Whatever. Like in Stormlight Archive. Really? The eyes are the thing. Like dark eyes and oh, light eyes. Right. That's right. That's yeah. right. They do. Uh, right. But like. But even that is in itself a little bit of a commentary on real world racial, right? Because they're basically saying like, well, in this world, they've chosen this completely arbitrary cosmetic difference as something that marks you out as a race. Fine. Um, But yeah, it seems like Wheel of Time is just like, yeah, we're not really dealing with that. Like this, these books never had racial politics in them of their own. So it's not something we need to like calibrate for our world. Whereas Dune, now to be fair... I don't think in the source text it ever really like it really looks at like the different quote unquote races more of just like, look, I mean, humans have been colonizing the galaxies for millennia here. Like you are going to start to see like like some degree of evolutionary differences um, or even just, you know, um, if not evolutionary in like a major sense. But, you know, um, in the way that, you know, a white person in today's world is evolutionarily different than a a black person, right? That's kind of the way it is in Dune. And it's just like, this is just the outgrowth of the way these civilizations have developed on planets that are very far apart from each other for very long stretches of time. Um, But even though I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think the book explicitly identifies Paul as capital W white. 
Right. But also by not really describing him, but then also describing the complexion of the Fremens to a certain degree, uh, we kind of know what you're saying, you know? Yeah. They're clearly saying it's different, right? right? So it's maybe not, doesn't have to be white savior, but there definitely is a colonial savior element here, which might yeah. be the better way to put it. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. But it just it just feels like and I don't know the full details of the second half of the book yet and what goes on past that as much as in full detail. But it just seems like to try and get around the white, like to try and get around the colonial savior plot line, it just feels like you're you like gut most of. The yeah, book. you don't have a plot anymore. <laughs> yeah. So and I'm not saying you can't do it, but like you need to have a you need to have a point of view on it and you need to uh, have uh well, I guess what I'm saying is um, it's definitely a colonial savior movie, but then to also in, to make your colonial saviors also white and then most other characters non-white, I kind of feel like you have to address something here, right? Because you could have had all of your colonial powers, right? The Atreides and the Harkonnen and the, you know, they could be multi-ethnic, but you could call them out in other ways to establish a difference between colonizer and colonized, right? It could have been done through hairstyles and wardrobe and all those other things to draw a visual distinction without relying on skin color. And the fact that it relies on skin color using the same power relationships that exist in our world as they relate to skin color is, like I say, a confusing choice. Yeah. And I don't want to necessarily imply anything, but, you know, having watched, I think there's only one Denny Villeneuve movie I haven't seen. I think it's Enemy. Uh, but I've seen Sicario, which is very well done, but um, might not have the best depiction of Mexicans in it. Yeah. Um, I'm a little worried that uh, there is not a twist coming <laughs> on the racial politics of Dune. I don't know that I should that I should necessarily expect it to uh, to turn the corner. Yeah, I, I am not saying that Denny Villeneuve is a white supremacist and I'm not <laughs> saying that Dune is white supremacist propaganda. I right. Want to be very clear here. I'm just saying this seems like a very strange blind spot. Yeah, that's a really good point. And one I hadn't really like considered or, or noticed, but now I will not be able to unsee. So thanks for that. But no, it's, it's but also that, that is thing. something I want to re when I rewatch it, because in, in my memory of it, it's basically you've got the Atreides and the Harkonnens are like white, white. Um, I mean, and the Harkonnens are like, like white, white, super <laughs> like white, real yes. white. <laughs> um, and then you've got literally everyone else who is either in a like colonized role or in a like subservient role to the Atreides. Um, I know. I remember the uh, the delegate. I mean, so like Kynes is black and so is another imperial delegate, the guy who like yeah. announces the transition. Yep. So there's the kind of that. But yeah, we're more focusing more on the Atreides and the Fremen right. and their hired help. But I feel like. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you said there's there's this whole, you know, there's this whole, unfortunately, you said, like wrapped up of like the Fremen are like kind of Indians, but also kind of people from the Middle East. Yeah. And yeah. just leaning hard into them all being dark skinned is just kind of just like, so you're really trying to like tell us this, right? Is this what you're trying to say? Right. Um, and I'm not again, I'm not saying it doesn't make diegetic sense within the world of the film. Yes, I would expect 
that after, you know, centuries and centuries of living on a desert planet, there might be some selection for darker skin. Um, I'm not, you know, that's that's reasonable to me to expect. Um, or you could also, you know, there, there's also absolutely um, reason to, you know, within the fiction to and this might even be in the deeper lore of like the original settlers of Arrakis, who now we would call the indigenous people, were darker complexion to begin with. Right. Right. Like, that's just how it played out. Um, and thus, that's why we're here. And yeah, like you, know, so you could justify it diegetically, but it's still a little weird. Yeah, I feel like the play is because that's one thing that I, I feel like I don't know the timelines of Doom, but I think they're pretty vast, right? Like we're talking like thousands and thousands of years from like our Earth time, right? Yes. So like. I don't know, just the choice. And I get that it's just like a thing, but the choice to have like a Bible and very clear ethnic names that match people's ethnic descriptions in our mind, like Dr. Wu, for example. Yes. Depicted as an Asian person. It's like I kind of feel like over another couple other five or ten thousand years of all this craziness, we probably would have done away with some of this connection. (laughs) It's already happening at a rate on our planet. You know what I mean? As far as just like generally getting darker complexion around the world and, you know, mixing of different ethnicities and races. Like, I just, I don't know. So here's, so, so in one case, uh, I, I think that like in the broad strokes, Herbert's like vision of the future is like reasonable because I don't know if in the text he, like, I think he, you're supposed to understand that, um, um, that, you know, like the doctor is like, he is somewhat racially distinct from the Atreides, but I don't think he's described as like, it's a Chinese guy. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's, so the idea is like, there might still be racial distinctions, but they would, they would be different than what we have today. Right. Like the, the selection of the various, you know, cosmetic differences might you know, they might combine differently, right. but you might still have these differences because, again, you've got this great diaspora of humans to all these different planets. Um, So you might still have, you know, it's not like, oh, we're all going to end up, you know, being just this final form of mixed race. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, And so but when you're casting a movie with, you know, today's humans, it's like, well, these are the <laughs> these are what I these are the, you know, the kind of the broad categories I have access to. Sure. Yeah. Um, or diegetically, if you're saying that the way colonization took place, like I think about Hyperion, where it was very like, you know, the Muslims took a ship and went to these three right. planets and, you know, the Buddhists took a ship and went to these planets and like that then just so there's and, a reason that they might have maintained like a distinct racial and then right. potentially that could be tied to ethnic, religious, you know, cultural stuff. And, but. and he does. He has. And look, I mean, I don't know if if the way his his view of future religion makes sense, but, you know, it, the orange Catholic Bible is that that, you know, is described like um, it's actually like it's actually like a mix of Christianity and Hinduism, I think. And then okay. you've got the Fremen like their um, their religion is descended from like Zen Sunni, which is like Zed Buddhism mixed with Sunni Islam. So like he has thought about these things to a certain degree, whether or not those are particularly compatible religions. And like you could imagine some future fusion of them logically. Um, 
So he has thought about those things a little bit, although weirdly, I think in book three or four, they literally just find Jews. Okay, great. Which like on one hand is kind of like that's actually kind of a neat idea that like over 8000 years, all, you know, many of Earth's major religions have mutated and combined and have these offshoots. But like there's this one or at least one sect that like stayed completely true like, oh, that's kind of a neat idea. And like, but then also to have them be Jews is a little weird. Of all the religions you could have picked, right? This one that is currently very singled out for being the weirdos, you know, yeah. um, to choose that one is a little strange. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see the logic for him is like a guy who was really into history being like, well, you know, like the, you know, like the the Jewish tradition is kind of in in many ways like inward looking and 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 insular is not the right word but you know uh it's not it hasn't had the for some negative reasons but like i'm not sure what i'm trying to scrap here but no like I, yeah i mean there there is a certain logic to it right yeah like out of all the things that hasn't had quite the same and there's all kinds of jewish folks i'm not that sure let me get that out but like it has stayed a little more on the straight and narrow as far as it's like theology and stuff yeah. And there's variations of it, but like, I don't think there's quite the diversity within the, the there's diversity of like uh, how strict you follow things. But as far as far as diversity of like just like how much Christianity and Islam have like branched into like almost unrecognizable things from each other, where right. I don't think the Jewish tradition has done that as much. And yeah. I can see that logic of being like, you know, since it is so like text and historical based and there is also an idea of like an association with an ethnic identity behind it as well, which sure. a lot of other religions don't have um, and, the major ones, I should say. And so persecution all those kind of pieces can also um, strengthen traditions. Right? Exactly. Yeah. But it's also weird that in the context of the books, again, 8000 years in the future, they're also still like on the run. <laughs> yeah. For persecution. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what you're I like. Again, weird choice. Just a yeah. weird choice. Yeah. Um, uh, but but again, I don't like. By all accounts, Frank Herbert, especially for a guy who, you know, you know, grew up when he grew up, had his formative years when he had them like that dude had his head screwed on pretty fucking straight for somebody who started his career in the 60s. I'm not I, I, I'm not trying to disparage the guy. Yeah. But yeah, again, yeah. No. just a weird choice. Just a yeah. weird choice in your world building. Yeah. And that's going to be that's the thing that's so many places, you know, it's it just relics of their time. And not that that's an excuse, but it's an explanation. But and I will say, I mean, I think that even for his time, like Frank Herbert was, you know, um, uh, his ideas and his politics were pretty respectable, even for his time. Right. Like even correcting for um, for the 60s, like, you know, the, the dude was still pretty, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, he's born in 1920. Like <laughs> oofa doofa. <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> dude is old. Um, yeah, they were handing old. out anti-Semitism uh, in kindergarten at, yes. <laughs> at that point. So uh, yes, I guess, yes, yes. I'm not even even grading him on a curve. I think he's you know pretty good um, because at, at the end of the day, Dune is anti-colonialist. And uh, you could make arguments that, you know, it's anti anti-capitalist. I believe Dune is anti-religious um, because it I mean, it. The whole thing is about like how religion can manipulate 
and the, most religions just serve existing power structures and also that um, maybe investing single people with godlike powers and expectations maybe is bad. Um, so like, I, I think that at the core, Dune is like Dune, 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 good politics at the core, <laughs> um, around the edges, uh, it can be a little rough, but well, also, uh, you know, it, it is inherently anti-colonialist, but, uh, I think that Dune runs the risk of like, uh, to bring up Watchmen again, like a fair amount of people who thought Rorschach was the hero. Right, right. You know? And like Dune is an anti-colonialist work that relies on a lot of colonialist tropes. And I'm not sure that uh, everybody who watches it is going to get it. And I'm also not sure that Denny gets it. Yeah, which is possible and and seems to be the case. I definitely think that uh, it's, and it's anti-colonialism in the 60s. Like that looks very different than yeah. what we are modern understanding of what anti-colonialism is. So, yes. yeah, it's going to be wrapped up in a lot of things that we'd be like, oh, well, we have a better understanding or a new theory about, you know, a new framework around this idea around colonialism and, and yeah. how it works and, and how we disrupt it and stuff. And, and, and that's not he didn't have those. So and I'll say that I, I, I'm saying it's an anti-colonialist work in that it is basically saying colonialism is bad. I wouldn't say it is a decolonialist work, right? Because right. decolonialism is a whole thing. Um, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, it says that all of the all the colonial nonsense and the wars between the Fremen or not the Fremen, uh, the wars between the Atreides and the Harkonnen and the Landsrad and all this other stuff. All this does is uh, uh, burden the native population and destroy the ecology that not only is important to them in material ways, but also spiritual ways. Right. Like the Fremen are routinely the victim and Arrakis is routinely the, evic the victim, no matter how well intentioned Paul and his shitty kids end up being. Um, you know, that's kind of the master narrative. Right. Um, but telling that story through the eyes of the colonizers is a tricky thing. And I'm not sure that Frank Herbert got it right. And I'm not sure that Denny Villeneuve is going to get it right. Yeah, that's a good way to summarize it, I think. Hooray. Maybe we'll be uh, maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised in book in movie two. But I but I will I, I, I do think that this is a, a decent movie. I don't know that it's his best movie. Um, is it the best Dune adaptation? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, the David Lynch version is fucking cuckoo bananas for its own reasons uh, and good in its own way. I don't know that it does a better job of adapting the source material. Certainly takes more liberties. Um, the two miniseries are super low production value, but I think they maybe do a better job of painting Paul as maybe a little bit more of a sinister figure than the other two. But okay, um, they're also just they're also just objectively like bad in many ways. Like yeah. they're holy shit. I I, I mean there are. There are there are very clearly scenes where it's just people standing in front of a painted fucking backdrop like it's a high school play. Good <laughs> God. Although James McAvoy plays Leto, too, in the in one of them. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think of the idea of to look to the future a little bit? What do you think? So, you know, part two has been greenlit. I mean, it seems to be a successful, like a very successful initiative. Um, and 
Villeneuve said that he 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 envisions it as a trilogy, and the, the third movie being the second book is called Doom Messiah, right? Or yeah, I think so. Yeah, being that book, or is it and Children of he, Dune? Um, I'll look up quick, but I think Children of Dune is 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 book two, but oh, okay. Um, but basically that like he kind of views that as the complete. Like a complete, a more complete story than just the first book of Dune. Uh, I think that's correct. I, I think that, um, yeah, I think that, um. Yeah, it's children. No, it is Dune Messiah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I think Dune Messiah, like, I, I think that is where, um, you know, it, it, the first book establishes Paul as the, the, the Uber bench. Uh, and then the second book deconstructs that. Mm hmm. Um, so I do think that Dune is is at least the one of the key messages or themes of Dune is incomplete without Dune Messiah. So I would agree that, yeah, you do need both. Um, but I don't know if you can do all of Dune Messiah in one movie. But also, I it's been a very long time since I read that book. Well, I will tell you when I get to it, <laughs> uh, which will be soon, probably, because my goal, my goal is to try and read the Frank Herbert Dunes. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, uh, those are the right books to read. <laughs> I'm, but I am not sure you need to read all of them. I'm going to try. I, I, I applaud your effort, but, um, uh, it, the, there is a very distinct quality curve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll see how long I stick with it. And I've also been getting, you know, I don't, I'm not a rereader, but again, been getting a niche to reread real time and that's undertaking as well. So, and, and I, uh, and I will say that, um, I know you're a completionist, um, and I, I understand the, the impulse to, um, to read all of the Frank Herbert Dune novels, but I will say that like, it definitely, it's not like there's a complete story in there that you need to get to the end of. It just kind of rambles. After Dune Messiah, it really just kind of, it just seems like he's just moving into like, I'm just going to keep telling stories in this world and whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's not like, oh, I've got to get to the end and I have to see what he was going for this whole time. I think one and two, basically that's the vision. And then like three and four are kind of like just that again, but with different characters. <laughs> And then it just and then it just kind of becomes serial sci-fi nonsense with 500 Duncan Idaho clones. And um, I mean, look, if you want to do it, by all means, do it. But I'm just telling you, there is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> I know I've, I've been looking at just like because I, you know, I've been told that the Brian Herbert slash Kevin Janderson continuations are generally like more just like, like you said, serial sci-fi stuff, which isn't necessarily bad. But I've also heard they're not yeah, particularly good. That's also the problem. Is that they're just not very good books. <laughs> but uh, I might want to just like see for myself what that looks like. But we'll see. I'm yeah. not I'm not committing to it. I also like Kevin Janderson wrote a lot of Star Wars books and most of them are not very good. So I'm kind of like, mm, I'm yes. not like big into that. But um, I mean, they're not terrible, but not known for being like a high point in the old EU. Kevin Janderson's yeah. output. So um, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious, but uh, I am going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and not I'm going to try and temper my natural impulses here. That's what I would do. I'm, I'm partially also because I just finished the Witcher series and I really did not like it. And I'm just like, I don't know if I have it in me just to like slog through something right now, at least at this point in my life, like maybe down the road, I'll give it another go, whatever. But like, especially after reading Wisdom of Crowds in between, I was like, oh, my God, it's like a. <laughs> Fucking fresh glass of water. What wow. a nice treat. A good book that has like 
<laughs> it has like an idea behind it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I can read it in in a reasonable amount of time, and it's not. Yeah, it's just different. Obviously, different yeah. goals. But um, <laughs> uh, an author who respects my fucking time and intelligence. <laughs> Precisely. So, um, yeah, and I've also had some other good recommendations. I've been kind of itching to check out. So maybe it'll be one of those things where I read one and then put it down for a little bit and come back. Um, I am curious though that uh, while we're on a like weird series that kind of just don't go anywhere but kind of do but kind of don't uh allegedly orson scott card is bringing out the last enders book that ties together which is which is a series that i read all for some goddamn reason uh the quality curve for that is also um thing but allegedly it links up the two divergent timelines and or storylines and whatever and i'm like I don't think I don't know if I have it in me like I want to, but also I don't want to because then I also have to go back and like read the Wikipedia articles for Xenocide and my fucking name is the book. Everything after Speaker of the Dead. Uh, Some of those things are just those are just slogs. And I also find that a lot of sci fi stuff. I actually prefer if it's just like stories because I find that so much sci fi when it goes long and big, it's super metaphysical and then starts to cut back over to like how you view like, you know, people's religion and stuff starts to come out in it. And you're like, mm, I don't know about that. Yeah. yeah. This gets weird. You know, that's why I'm like, just keep it like make a world and try and. But space is space and space stuff is just so weird. It's hard to. I mean, today I learned not only that Orson Scott card is still alive, but that apparently <laughs> Ender's Game is still an ongoing thing. <laughs> it's like he's telling uh, me like, oh, new episodes of Car 54. Where are you are coming out? He hasn't he hasn't made an entry in it. He, he did a series of prequel books, but like co-wrote them. So I don't think he really did much of the writing like years ago and have brought them out. I think two of sets of those. I didn't read those. I was like, I'm not fucking doing that. Um, but he's always talked about this last book that's going to like kind of quote unquote finish his ideas for the series and bring together Ender and Bean's stories in their final kind of meetup, despite being like thousands of years apart or, you know, in, in timeline and stuff or whatever. So I don't know. I've definitely read some bad books. Like, you know, I read the forever where I was like, this is great. And then I read the second one. I was like, this was garbage. <laughs> and then you read the next three or four because you're a masochist. No, there's only two of those, to be fair. Um, actually, the, the the second book was fine until like the last 20 percent. And I was like, oh, I think he just got bored of writing this book. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm not hating. I mean, people t- I mean, this, this is going to be this is going to sound like me flexing and it, don't interpret it that way because it's not. But. Like people are always like, like, oh, yeah, bring Dune. They're like, no, oh, good luck. And they act like it's this fucking tome. It's like it's really not like that dense or hard to read. Maybe I'm just been like sharpening my teeth on some stuff like that, you know, in longer books and denser books, you know, your Miavilles and your whatever else. I just didn't find it to be particularly like it's not. Yeah, it's not like a fucking Abercrombie or Sanderson book. They're just like quick reads and page turners by any means. But it's just like I'm also have read a shit ton of history and stuff so i probably yeah. just have a slightly higher tolerance for that kind of thing but i, people... I don't i mean i you know I, I i will say that like yeah um dune it can be a challenging read like it is it's pretty dense and um it's it's, it's pretty dense and it, it can be challenging but like it's not yeah i wouldn't say it's like a oh be careful kind of uh kind of thing it's just kind of like yeah it's a, it's a dense fairly cerebral sci-fi 
book. Can I can I read you a line from this Wikipedia article that I just had open because I was looking up the order of the book so I could find the name of it, but I just happened to read it offhand. Um, that is going to make you probably just want to turn the recording off right now. <laughs> in Sandworms of Doom, which came out in 2007, mm. written by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson, Duncan Idaho is revealed to be the final cataract destined yep. to bring together humans and thinking machines. Yep. Great. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's what we all cared about, right? Oh that's what gosh. that's what all of us were reading Dune for is to find out who's the real Kwisatz Haderach. Oh, yeah. it's Duncan Idaho, but also it's not really Duncan Idaho. It's like the third or fourth clone of Duncan Idaho. Yeah. Well, he is not a product of the breeding program. His multiple rebirths and deaths as a Gola Gola clone <laughs> throughout the series had given him the opportunity to gain experience and develop himself as no other human could. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, wow, <laughs> big wow. Yeah, it's, weird. Uh, it's not great. <laughs> it's not not great. I uh, that's yeah. That's why I would just tell everybody like, don't fucking bother with that nonsense. Like, you just gotta just bail on Dune after about book two. Just fucking bail. It's not. It's not going anywhere, man. <laughs> it's hard because I've actually kind of been craving like a bigger, more pulpy serial thing, like. I'm just, just feeling nostalgic for the old Star Wars EU, but like Star Wars is a good setting for that because it's just fun and whatever. But Dune seems like simultaneously dense, but then you also try and serialize it and it just yeah. feels like a weird mix. That's the thing is, is I, I that's actually a good analogy is that Dune kind of turns into Star Wars EU around book four, three or four. Like it just kind of becomes like, oh, let's just goof around and have space adventures. Right. And just keep changing our mind about who the chosen one is and like what's happening to Arrakis. And like they, I mean, I feel like they bring water to Arrakis and then turn into a desert and then bring water back. Like that happens like four times. <laughs> have the you read these books or what? I have no, I have read, I think I got up to book four or five before I bailed. And then I've read the wikis. Okay. And because I'm like, OK, at this point, I kind of want to see where this is going, but I'm I'm not going to read the book. I'm just going to read the Wikipedia. And then it turns out like it doesn't really end. There really is no point where you say, ah, Dune, done. Right. They there's just not, keep there's not an it. arc here that they're right. trying to right. get through or make a point of. It's yeah. the opposite problem of Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> the opposite problem. Yeah, where we desperately want an end, but we'll never get one. Right. <laughs> and, and there clearly is an end like there's yeah. we're, we're building to an end here. Just fucking get there as opposed to Dune where it's like, oh, you you had an end, but then you were like, psych. <laughs> so what you're saying is you're super excited for the new Game of Thrones spinoff on HBO, right? I was told that there was a trailer and I have not watched it because I cannot be made to care. <laughs> That it is impossible for me to care about a Game of Thrones prequel, of all things, about the Targaryens of all characters. I cannot <laughs> think of anything more boring set in the Game of Thrones. No, the truth is, there's only one thing I care about set in the Game of Thrones universe, and that is the ending of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Which we will never get. Which, well, uh, I mean, no, we got it. I think that's the thing, well, is we yeah. got it. And it fucking sucked. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're also maybe it's going to be that Benny Gesserit show. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Stop it. Just be happy with what we have. <laughs> Just 
that's it. I don't want a Benny Gesserit show. Like, they're supposed to be mysterious and weird. We're not supposed to spend much time with them. They're supposed to be sinister and bad. And, um, no. It's fucking dumb. It's not, <laughs> it's not why we're here. It's not why we're here. Well, everything has to be a franchise now, Greg. I know. I know everything has to be a franchise, and that's why I hate this world we live in. <laughs> well, it, it's been a very, like... I can only describe it as, and I'm not sure there's probably a name for what kind of chart it is, where it's like there's two lines going different directions and they meet at a point. Um, Like one of those lines is m- me being transitioning from uh young Andrew to approaching oh. middle age <laughs> Andrew and realizing that like, oh, I really want everything to be a franchise slowly curving to I don't think that's always a good thing or necessary in many ways and simultaneously the world is moving in the opposite direction and if this would have happened at a different time in my life i probably been fucking amazed and excited but i have they've passed each other and now i'm like oh now it just isn't fun anymore <laughs> so i guess is it more of the story it just makes me feel old and i'm just turning into you and i hate it but i don't hate it well it's okay it's okay <laughs> it's just the loss of innocence you know it's how it goes you um <sighs> the the sooner you learn that this is freaking bullshit nonsense, uh, the 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 better you'll feel. Um, yeah. Well, look, I'm I guess to sum things up, I'm looking forward to where he goes from here. I'm looking forward to rewatching this movie when I get a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it is. I don't know that I can call it a good movie because it's incomplete. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I think incomplete. we'll have to judge that when we have part one and two together and you can say kind of like it'd be hard to. I mean, each of the Lord of the Rings movies are good movies in themselves, but you wouldn't really want to judge them individually. Right. They're not a complete. I mean, they, they, they're they very clearly uh, incomplete, but each one does have its own arc to a certain extent. You know, yeah. um, this does not. This yeah. really just feels like the first. It doesn't feel like the first it doesn't feel like a part one movie. It feels like the first half of a movie. Yeah. Um, which I think is it's 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 greatest failing is because I mean, other movies have proven that you can be a part one, but still feel complete. Right. Totally. You know, like Empire Strikes Back knew it was a part two. Like New Hope did not know that it was a part one. Mm-hmm. Right. But Empire knew that it was a part two, um, but still feels like a complete movie. It definitely says more is going to come, but like there is a there is a very clear arc, like just to pin like to point it at Luke. It is, you know, it is very clearly an arc of him choosing his friends over his destiny as a Jedi and Mm -hmm. paying a price for that. And then learning that maybe his destiny is not as hard to shake off as he thought. Mm -hmm. Right. It there's something there. We don't get that with Dune. It's just all set up. No payoff. Yeah. And the judgment of that setup will then depend on the payoff, which right. we'll get in two years, I guess. At which point it just becomes, uh, don't really watch these as two movies. Just you got to back to back them. Yeah, smush them together. Um, but I appreciate that it was big and bold. I appreciate that, like, people's appetite for, like, a big, slightly confusing science fiction movie, like, did well. Yeah, Dune gets weird with it and people seem to seem to be OK, which fine. Yeah. So I just think it's also just people, you know, obviously we've talked about the trend of obviously genre fiction becoming much more mainstream with a million things. MCU, Game of Thrones, 
etc. But it will further embolden adaptations and get more money into that stuff, which I think is good overall, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of great works of fiction out there that be fun to see on the screen in different ways. And I guess if we have to live in a Jeff Bezos run post-apocalyptic hellscape, we might as well get some good TV out of it. Yeah. Um, because I mean, the amount of money that is, I just don't, I don't see how it lines up, Craig. I just don't see the economics of modern film streaming like production. There's so much content being made and not a lot of it's being made for very cheap. I mean, they're dropping like $10 million an episode per episode for wheel of time. That's like how much some of the later game of Thrones seasons episodes cost. Seems like a lot. <laughs> it seems like a lot for like a so a series it's like this could be bad. I and mean looking I'm, at the trailers, <laughs> I'm not sure it looks that expensive, but the more recent ones maybe have early days. better, I think. Okay. Um I mean they but they said they also one of the trailer breakdowns I watched, the showrunner said like we tried to do as much practical as we could, including their you know the the village they started in. Um mm-hmm. Like name but in the two rivers like they built that whole thing and then burn it to the ground like during awesome. the filming of this scene which is pretty fucking cool but um yeah so like i don't know that show has already been renewed for a second season it's just and like there's i mean there's talk of the game of thrones series or sorry the lord of the rings series that amazon's working on costing like upwards of a billion dollars to make and it's like what how like how can streaming be worth that uh, i don't I don't understand, uh, especially for, again, a series that I'm like, I don't fucking care. I don't, I don't need to see like, what is it? Is it about Numenor? I don't give a shit. <laughs> oh, I really don't give a shit about what happened on Numenor. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you, Greg. Though. We'll end on something kind of just fun. Sure. What is something that you would like to see adapted that hasn't been adapted yet that you think maybe could happen in the future that like some of these these successful things, Game of Thrones and Dune and whatever else might be able to make happen for you um that's a kind of on the spot question no that's but. fine so i would i would really like to see a mistborn anime mm-hmm. um i i really like mistborn and also i think anime is the perfect style for it because clearly especially at the end there it would just it is just anime at the end of that of that book but no, I, I I think and I think Mistborn would adapt very well to the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's just the right kind of story um, and it's got enough hooks uh, that I, I think it could work really well. And I also think there are some some flaws in it that some minor flaws that could be corrected. Like I like the for example, just going on memory here, but like the the romantic relationship that's kind of at the core of books two and three like just never really lands for me as a reader Mm. um so i feel like you know this would be a great chance to like shore that up a little bit you know kind of correct that flaw in the original uh so that's one um i also think i mean a um a uh first law you know series would be also just like super super easy to do right the the way they're written the nature of the story would i feel like would adapt to the screen very very easily you know uh it's very action driven Mm um when i say action driven i don't necessarily mean like stunts and fights but you know it's like it's not as cerebral as dune like we've been talking about like it's sometimes tough when everything's happening inside characters heads uh but first law it's very much you know it's very much dialogue and like characters doing things yeah um and of course you know i'm gonna say the the bass lag trilogy oh that'd Um, be something because i would just i would love to see 
new Crobazon like realized visually like that's one of the things like i would and there's so little like even like fan art of it Mm -hmm. i would love to see like i would love to see somebody like take that on good choices i i keep thinking you know because everyone you know is saying that even there's reports that jeff bezos literally sat at a table and said give me my you know give me my game of thrones like i want to have everyone's trying to capture that magic right it's the wrong sentence it's give me game of thrones but good yeah um, <laughs> the but good part but i keep i you know I'm, i can't but do you think like first of all staring you in the face because you're trying to capture that same kind of like feeling and combination of things that worked really well it's all there you know the intrigue the it's character driven you know different factions there's twists and turns that are great for great for like you know tv there's enough sort of like upper level macro intrigue and plot, you know, like, you know, how long do we sit there and just like theorize about what stuff means? Like that's what people want to do. So I'm just like, it's right there for someone waiting to like do it. And you wouldn't have to do, you know, and you could go because the world is so well-developed, you could go a lot of different direction with it and not have to be super faithful to adapting it exactly how it was done, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't really have like, first of all, it's definitely up there for me. I think the red rising series is my like kind of, like hoping to see that because I mean, the guy basically said like, I mean, I wrote these books. So I like to write, but like, I really have it in mind for visual story and telling medium down the road and for like a big, bold, crazy action packed sci-fi. I think that would be like a lot of fun in a pulpy way, but also in just like a cool way, mm-hmm. uh, less surreal, like way less cerebral than, than doom, but still has a lot of interesting concepts in it. Um, you know, I'm. It's curious that they're they're kind of on this trend right now to adapt like classics, right? It's like there's the Dune, there's Foundation, you know, which are such cerebral books. It's a really interesting choice to kind of go to those. But I guess it's the pattern of like trying to go to the classics, right? Well, Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings did well, so we'll go to other places. But Sanderson stuff, I I agree with you. I mean, I think that his stuff is just so fantastical. Mm-hmm. I know the rights have been bought and let fallow and moved around and shuffled and stuff. There's definitely, I think Mistborn could be, is, I think, I think Stormlight would have to be an anime. It's just too crazy. And it yeah. is, a, it is an anime. I think Mistborn, you could do live action if you wanted to, but I also agree it'd be cool to do. I mean, I think you made like a really good anime of like the Cosmere. That would be a super great way to adapt his work, but who knows? I'm sure that being, I mean, being one of the best selling fantasy authors, I'm sure he in his mind, even though he likes anime a lot, he probably is like, but I can get like a movie that will make, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. So why am I going to make some anime for those anime kids over there? He wouldn't say that because he's just too nice of a guy. But I've listened to his podcast quite a bit and which I mentioned last time, but uh, it's good. It's very casual, very chill. Uh, He's a lot of interesting opinions about stuff. Sure, he does. Yeah. He's just a big nerd. He's a huge nerd. And he clearly watches a shit ton of anime. Oh, yeah. I mean, the last episode he did with the other author was all about magic gathering. Like, they yes. just talked about magic the entire time. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's an unforgivable nerd. <laughs> unforgivable. <laughs> <laughs> Greg will never forgive him for how much of a nerd he is. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I mean, like, oh, yeah, he's a... <laughs> no, I guess unrepentant nerd is yeah. the better way to put it. Not unforgivable. <laughs> yeah so. uh speaking of speaking of anime i've started watching kill la kill on netflix which I is what that is I, I, i'm gonna lay this out for you just as a uh just i'm just gonna give you the pitch um I, I, and i'm gonna say at the outset it is unrelentingly horny 
this is a horny, horny anime. Okay, um, great. My favorite kind. Yes. But uh, it's 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 set at a, a school uh, with a highly like striated um, like class system. Great. But uh, it's striated by the um, like the uniform, the school uniform you wear. Um, but the uniforms all have special powers and like the degree of special powers they have. Right. You go up the scale. Um, uh, and um, there's a lot of fighting. But like the main character is is a girl and her like school uniform is just like incredibly porny. But like they fight by basically cutting each other's clothes off. <laughs> it's so dumb, but it's also really fucking good. What's it kind of knows it how horny it is and is kind of like that's also I think it's almost a little bit of a parody of how horny anime can be. But it's also very horny, but it's also very absurd and fucking weird. Uh, that sounds very strange. It is very strange, but it's also like the world building is really like kind of like the visual design of the of the school. Like it sits on top of this like like almost mountain of like kind of shanty towns. It's kind of like South American favelas. But the school itself has this really like alien architecture. Um, it's really it's 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 really weird um, in a way that like is kind of infectious. I don't know how else to describe it. Oh, it's like not new. It's like relatively. No, it's it's been around for a while. Huh. Um, Fascinating. But yes, it is uh, unforgivably so, horny. Here's my question. Why are Why? you watching this? Yeah. Like what What was you were like? You know, you, Why you, did I start watching Kill yes, the Kill? Yeah. Because I was stoned. OK. <laughs> and I happened to open the Netflix app and that happened to be like near the top of my recommendations because I think I was watching Castlevania at Halloween. Mm -hmm. And also Netflix, I guess, knows that I'm a degenerate now because I've watched <laughs> so much Evangelion. Fair um, enough. But it was there and I was like, I've heard like I like this is like it's a popular anime that like, you know, like people make memes about it. Right. Like it's a thing. And I was like, right. Right, let's fucking see what this is about. Whatever. Um, And then I'm like, this actually is kind of all right. Uh, It's weird. Like it, it, it's like it's. It might be worth watching just for like the style, uh, the stylization and visuals alone. I don't know how many episodes in I'm going to get. I'm like two or three in right now. But uh, we were talking about <laughs> anime and I just there it is. Fair enough. Um, here's my second follow up question. What does Karen say when she walks by and she sees you watching uh, unrepentantly horny anime about teenage girls? Uh, I, I basically warn her like warn her and say, like, I I'm going to watch a horny fighting anime. <laughs> Dumb. <laughs> <laughs> like because sometimes i'll just say like i'm gonna watch a fighting anime which is what i'll also do <laughs> and then i'll just warn her like it's just pretty it's a horny anime um uh and and i think she just ignores me i guess is, she's used to it at this point which is the right response <laughs> uh well adapted the situation eh. and i assume this goes on after charlotte goes to bed yeah <laughs> I mean, it's not like pornographic. I mean, it's, no, no, it's, I get it's, it. It's I a horny it. anime. Like we all have seen horny animes before. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But Kill the Kill is actually kind of it's kind of good. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll have to check in with my anime experts about it. See what they think. It's 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 pretty all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, hopefully we'll hear more about that. I don't know, man. Future. I don't know how far. Like I say, I don't know how much I can. Like I don't know. I I don't know how far down that road I'm willing to go. There's only twenty some episodes, huh? 
right. Looks maybe, like uh, maybe I'm reading this right. Maybe I'll stick it out. So I mean, that's not that much to watch. Yeah, and the, the I mean the 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 fights are, can be pretty cool, and you know it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's one of these like I feel like it's from the era of anime halfway being a satire of anime. Mm-hmm. You know, like kind of that fooly cooly period. Um, Self aware. Uh, yeah, but also not in that weird kind of way of like you know how Family Guy would sometimes be like racist. But you weren't sure if it was like, oh, it's being racist to make fun of racists or is it just being racist? Right. I'm not quite sure where the line is on this. Um, yeah. Got it. That makes sense. Um, well, cool. All right. Uh, we did Dune. We did Dune. And uh, I will, I'm sure, have more to report back about Dune as I continue down this path. And hopefully I can pull myself out of a tailspin that results in me reading 15 Dune books. But I'm not going to make any promises. Yeah, we also have to talk about how I read, like, two different trilogies. Which two, is mind-blowing to me. Two different because sci-fi fantasy trilogies. That know, sounds like we've talked. more books than y- you've read in, like, the past five years. And re-read, re-read The City in the City. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I look forward to next time, then, because I also have uh, a lot to talk about. But not now. All right. It is quite late. Yeah. Go watch Kill the Kill. I, I might just throw an episode right now, just... Just go all go in. You might like, want to this take. You might want to alter your perception a little bit first. I don't know. <laughs> I found it beneficial. Well, I mean, it usually is benefit, right? Yeah, uh, that's on my list to do. Actually, is to alter my perception and go watch the Venom movies at some point. But oh um, yeah, I are like they the, good? Because people seem no, to like them. No, there's no uh, you. No world can you can convince me they're good. That's where I'm at. But so many people are watching them that I don't understand it. I kind of have to see what they're about. Yeah, I, that's how I feel, too. I'm just like, people have talked about these enough that I feel like I just need to academically have seen them, and especially now since allegedly there's going to be some crossover. Um, but I'm never going to give them money. And especially after seeing that Morbius trailer, I'm like, why are these things? Stop oh, making these that, things. That needs to fucking go. That Morbius movie, that <sighs> that needs to. I mean, number one, the trailer is just the movie. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. He's just turning into a vampire. Okay. Uh, and then he's do vampire stuff and be sad that he's a vampire. Okay. Yeah. And it's also like, what is the conflict here? Like, is he just going to be fighting guys with guns? Because that's super boring and super like, like all the Sony movies, they just feel like mid 2000 superhero movies. And it's just like, why are you doing this? Yeah. And, and it's, I, oh, I, I'm going to rant for a minute, but like, they put the fucking they put Michael Keaton in the fucking trailer. Yeah. How? And it's it's the most like craven base. Like, just like, you know that you're going to bait people when I seen this movie, even though that's probably just like the briefest of cameos. But also, he looks like he's like an EMT or something in the trailer, which is not. I think he's in prison clothes, but I'm not. Positive. OK, maybe that's what it is. Um, but even so, like the, his character. But it's like. He's not going to be he's not like properly casted in the movie. So you literally putting a cameo in the trailer. And that is like kind of I hate it. And I mean, it's not even a cameo where I'm like, oh, shit, because I mean, he was great in Spider-Man. But also at the end of Spider-Man, he was kind of like, yeah, we're cool now. Yeah, I'm, I'm no much... longer a threat to Peter Parker or the world. I've give you like he basically reformed kind of. Yeah, you like, think I'm just like I'm not going to hold a grudge like. 
Was, yeah. And he was just a guy with a wingsuit. Like, it's not like <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, he's back in play, you know? Right. I, I have no idea. I am very confused at the future because uh, you probably have seen or heard about the end credits trailer for the second Venom movie. Yeah, where they where they it seems like they're 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 going to bring him in through the multiverse stuff. Fine. Yeah, but it's just like. I'm surprised Marvel wants to do that, but also like someone pointed out that in the Morbius trailer, there's like lots of spot shots of Spider-Man in the background on things like on posters. Mm-hmm. And I think I read that in the most recent trailer, which is like the full trailer, they use a different Spider-Man in every single shot. Like they've used all three in different forms, like one in a poster, but it's like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man and a different poster or whatever billboard is the Tom Holland Spider-Man. It's just like, what are you doing? I don't know. I just am just, I don't like, Jared Leto to begin with. And no, he's awful. And I don't like I have no desire for a Morbius movie. No. Who I don't think could anybody asked for that. The only reason that Morbius is even a character people are aware of is because he was a reoccurring character on the animated Spider-Man show that was in the, on in the late 90s. I, I just I I can't understand what the logic is to make this movie other than um like in order to prevent all of these characters from reverting to Marvel, we need to make some movies or more just like we have them. So and we can bait some people into it because it's kind of Marvelish, and they're thinking it's probably part of the MCU and they'll watch it. And then we'll make a couple hundred million dollars and walk away because the, the, the positive thing about the Venom movies is that from what I understand, they are like a tight 90 minutes each, yep. which, OK, uh, fine. They just still look like trash, though. And everyone I've talked to who, like, kind of defends it is like, yeah, 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 but, like, Tom Hardy is just so weird. I'm like, that's not an appealing thing for me to go see a whole movie. Like, I don't. That's the thing people right. talk about with Joker. It's like, oh, well, he's just so weird. I'm like, I don't really. That's not a compelling reason for me personally to, like, for one person's performance in a movie to drive it. And everything I saw from the trailer is, is whatever Tom Hardy's doing, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, that's also part of it. Like, I, like Joaquin Phoenix's Joker was at least, like, compelling and interesting to watch. Say what you will about whether or not the movie was good. But like even in the trailers, I was like, I think I could watch this guy be weird for two hours. Yeah, like he's a good actor that will do interesting things. Tom Hardy is also a good actor, but I don't need to see him doing this weird. This isn't the role. This isn't the. Yeah. And they basically said like, oh, well, they're almost more comedies than anything. I'm like, why are we making Venom into a comedy? I don't really understand. Like, I'd be okay with that concept. Um, Like. I, you know, like I'm okay with that idea, but it doesn't seem like these movies have the right tone for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in the way that Deadpool is a comedy, right? Um, I wouldn't mind seeing Venom as a comedy, but it needs to go all in. This is like, yeah, I can't tell if it wants to be like edgy, badass uh, action, dark action movie. Or if it wants to be goofy comedy with homoerotic undertones. I'm like, <laughs> you guys got to pick a lane here. Yeah. And totally. the answer is the homoerotic comedy. That's the one I want. <laughs> um, I I don't. It's just a whole thing. I'm just like past hard path. Yeah, I don't I, I don't I don't need this. And Tom Hardy. I mean, look, he's a good guy, but honestly, not not the right not the right guy for this role. If it took it a serious route, I could see like I took it just burger. I'm just going to play Venom as the dumb antihero that he is and just play it straight. I could kind of see Tom Hardy doing that. But whatever his weird channeling of coked up guy from Brooklyn. I don't know. Like just is a very strange choice. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know if it's possible to like take venom places. Like I don't Not know. As a solo character, he's a, he's, he, 
just like we don't make a movie about all the other villains, it's like you put them next to Spider-Man. That's what people care right. about. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there you might be able to do something interesting with like if you took like a more of a horror angle where like Eddie Brock is an unwilling participant in the symbiote's murder spree, mm. you know, mm-hmm. like that could be interesting um, or more like like a. I mean, I think that this is kind of the vibe they were going for, which is more like almost like a buddy action movie, mm-hmm. which could be fine. But you need but I think in that case, you need Eddie to be a lot dumber. Mm-hmm. Um, He kind of needs to be a big himbo Um, and the, the symbiote being a little bit smarter than Eddie. Um, yeah. But I also don't know how you make this work, like how you make it work where Venom is the good guy. There's yeah, I mean, just, it just feels so I know that, like, I know we had a thing, lethal protector, the whole I don't fucking care. But like, look at the character. It's literally just dark Spider-Man. Like, that's why he exists. Why would you try? He works as a foil. Right. right? Why would you try and make a movie about the character without the foil? It's just like fucking it's such a DC move to do where it's like, yeah, let's make a Joker movie without Batman. It's like, what? Like, why? <laughs> like, who right. asked for that? Right. Like these characters work in their context together, not just like plucked up to put it. I don't know. And right. The, the 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 villain is a is a somewhat shallow character because in many ways they are written as simply a reaction to the hero. Right. And without the hero, it's well, what is this? You know, oh, it's Spider-Man, but bad. That means that um, he's irresponsible. Yeah. I mean, the but amount of villains that I think can carry their own movie without the main hero or hero team as antagonist slash protagonist relationship probably are on like one or two hands like loki maybe magneto maybe dr doom maybe like i I just don't there's just not a lot of them (laughs) right because and also they're villains they're they're they hurt people right for fun right and um you know and i think you know you can only do the joker so many times because the joker and 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 look that that's a flawed movie a lot of problems with it but like at least on paper it's about how society makes people into monsters makes jokers of us all which is okay that's great that's a that's a reasonable theme and it's actually about how the villain in joker is not joker he's you know that that character is arthur is uh he is the victim mm-hmm. and um and ends up becoming right the society is the villain and that's where the conflict is it's the it's the it's the the sympathetic character of arthur and then the villain is society um but you can't make every villain movie that right because that gets fucking boring Although, right. hey, Marvel made the same origin story 500 times and we keep throwing money at them. Um, <laughs> boy, this arrogant guy, boy, he sure is going to have a, a close call that's going to make him consider being so arrogant. But he still could be a little arrogant, um, <laughs> it, you know, but but still, it's like, well, you can only like I say, you can only do that so many times where it's like, oh, how society made Eddie Brock a bad guy. It's like, no, the fucking space alien made him a bad guy. <laughs> That's the, the, the space alien that lives in his blood. That's the issue. Yeah. So you can't and really like talk about like, you know, I mean, like at least with the Joker, like you can tell a plausible story of how like a cruel society could turn a mentally ill person into a serial killer or at least enable their worst impulses. Uh, 
okay, I, I, I get that. That's plausible. I understand that. But like, it's a fucking moon goop, man. <laughs> the moon goop is the problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, like we it's really hard to, to tell a story from like a bad person's perspective. Right. Like at least bad in like the, the really intensely bad way that like a serial killer or serial killing monster would be like it can be done, but it also only has so much so many like so, many, so much legs. Right. It's like it only can go so far. Like Shay and I have been we just watched the third season of that. Have you heard about the show called You? Yeah. Yeah. So. It was fine. They did some like clever things and they, they changed it up enough to make it compelling for the most part. But it's also just still like, yeah, but the kind of magic of the first season was that like this whole time you're you're kind of semi rooting for this guy, even though he's like clearly a fucked up dude who murders people and is a stalker. But you're kind of he's just so charismatic and he also does good things. But then at the end of the thing, he just blatantly murders the person he's been stalking. And that's kind of the point like that's kind of like the oh did you forget this guy how do you think this is going to end you know right but then just to like they've got they've got enough story to tell that they could do it i think that's been interesting but it's it starts to be like well what are we doing here like well yeah you can only do that magic trick once right the um, it starts to turn into the whole thing of like what is you know it's, it's society that changed him into yeah to makes him follow his worst impulses and blah blah it's like okay so that's tough you like i said you can only that story only has so much room to grow. Right. And and, and the whole point is, uh, the whole point is, you know, by making you sympathize with this character, um, we have now made you um, like we've made you complicit in in this, you know? Right. Yeah. Like and 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 guess what? That you can only do that twist once, you know, it's like, well, we're going to do the sixth sense, but it's a series. It's like, well, what every fucking time. You're going to do, oh that, oh, that guy was dead all along. Ah, oh, jeez, he got me again. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I don't know what they're doing. But just being dumb is the answer. Yeah. I mean, it's just like Sony being Sony. No no surprise. Take all these characters away from them. Yes. The love of God. Just so I have to see them. I don't want them to be in them. I just don't want them at all. Just don't make, still going to make their Black Cat and Silver Sable movie because somebody asked for that and they're going to make their solo Aunt May movie. Like, wh- why? 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 I don't know. I'm actually curious because there's a lot of like unclearness, un- unclearness. That's the word. Um, there's no clarity <laughs> around uh, like post Spider-Man uh, No Way Home. Like, is there a Spider-Man in the MCU? Like, is Tom Holland done? It kind of sounds that way. I think he's done. Wouldn't it be? Here was my like pitch the other day that like I actually don't want, but I think is funny. What if in through the course of No Way Home and the multiverse shenanigans and the other Spider-Man showing up that it goes back and Tobey Maguire is now the Spider-Man in the in the MCU. <laughs> I don't actually want that, but it'd be a funny uh, twist. I, I I would love to see an age like an older um, an older uh, an older Spider-Man in, in, you know, who's 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 been at this for a while. Like, that'd yeah. be cool. I would like that. And that's one thing I haven't done yet. Been the same like high school origin story three times in a row. Yes. And and well, I mean, I think it would be cool, but um, but I don't know that they're going to do that. I think they don't know what they're going to do. Right? Yeah, I, mean, I just don't think they're going to let Spider-Man lay fallow for more than no. a couple of years. Like they just it's just impossible for them not to want to make money off that. I, I think they're probably in a um, 
I, I think they're probably in a uh, th- this position where it's like, well, Holland is probably out and the who really owns the character is a little bit fishy. Right. And nobody is probably ready to commit to how things are going to go until they start to see the critical and audience response and ticket sales, etc. for the next Spider-Man movie before any anybody in a position of power is going to make up their mind about what the hell they do. You know, yeah. um, they're 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 waiting and I'm sure there's some ideas, but I think that uh, nobody's thought that hard about it until they decide how badly they want to fight to have Tom Holland make another one of these. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. You know, or they do a Miles Morales or like whatever they want to decide to do next. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm well, you know what? I can't say anymore because I have to start talking about other stuff and we both have to go to tangent. bed. Yeah. So we'll talk about MCU stuff more next time. Uh, I guess we need we to talk about Shang-Chi. We need to talk about Eternals. Both movies I have not seen. Correct. Uh, <laughs> but Eternals has some interesting parallels with Dune in a lot of ways, I, which is I kind might, of interesting. I, I, I might try to catch Eternals based on what you and I were talking about off mic. That, that might be worth a, a watch. It's, it's I hear it's not good, but I also hear that, like, there's some cool looking shit in it. So I don't think it's not. I don't think it's good, but I don't think it's not good. All right. It's not actively bad. Oh, no. I mean, like I said, it's the best Justice League movie that's come out. Well, low bar, but (laughs) Uh, I'd be I'd be curious your perspective from more from like a film critic constructivist kind of perspective. Less so if you actually just like enjoy the movie and characters. But just like I will say the one thing, you know, we'll talk about it more. But the representation I thought was really good. And that's like a low hanging fruit thing that seems like, but the particular, the character of Fastos, you know, he is the first like gay man in the Marvel universe, I guess. And, but he has like a husband and a kid and it's not like they do not do the, like, they don't make it a thing. It's very like normal in a really positive way. And I think that, I mean, I talked to someone who felt very strongly about what that meant to them. So yeah, no, I, I that's I'm cool. certainly not going to like it, it. It sucks that we've got this far, but I'm glad that they're not like uh, pointing out how unusual it is, you know? Right. Like we have to make we have to have Steve Rogers have something to say about this and then, you know, approve of it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. No, I and I was not expecting Marvel to have a particularly deft hand after the like thinking back to Endgame with the moment where all the women line up and do an anime freeze but like that was just like oof a doofa this is terrible uh but no it was just like inconsequential to like no one had any no one commented on the fact that they were gay and it was just like yeah this is a family right his family is important to the plot and him which they should be because it's his family but it's like and i'm you know for what it's worth i read that the middle east and some places in asia wanted them to cut those scenes and show the movie and marvel said no yeah good on them i guess cool Anyway, All right. We'll talk about stuff we will. more later. <laughs> All right. See you later. See you, buddy.